everyone has their own life. Yeah. Everyone has their own problems. Everyone has their own things that they have to prioritize. Someone's got, you know, just had the worst breakup of their life. Somebody just got divorced. Somebody yep. just got married and is stressful about it. Somebody just moved to a new state and got a new job. Somebody's kid doesn't like them right now and they're in therapy about it. All yep. these things, they already have to go through their day and put food on the table and do their job and worry about it. And they only have 24 sure. hours to do it and they got to and sleep in the middle and yet during all this they also have to have the wherewithal when they're escaping on social media which is their downtime and their time where they shouldn't have to like feel like they're doing work they suddenly have to make this work and educate themselves and decide every time they scroll their finger oh let me stop and consider who wrote this and why and why i'm reacting the way i do and does it to go back to the manual that you pointed out earlier, does it match the manual of what I'm supposed to do here? Yeah, the expectation yeah. on even a majority of society to have to do that is ridiculous. Yeah. It's sad, but it is. There's something that, that, that I think about a lot, actually, which is, you know, you don't know what you don't know. create more innovation out of what's going on. They really just care about boosting their 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 multiple, their public multiple. And, um, and their market say, cap. Yeah, they want to be able to say to shareholders, look at us, we're doing something. Exactly. Yeah. Or look at us, we're, you know, share price will go up another 10% this year. Uh, and it's mostly because we purchased this company that was, you know, had a 25 times, uh, you know, multiple on it versus our company that has an 18 times multiple. So when you blend it together, we've got a 20 times multiple now, right? And, like, and this is the disconnect too, between like Main Street and, and not even Wall Street, but, but Main Street and, and the major part of corporate America here. I don't think most of us appreciate the fact that these, these big companies, when they're public, they have a quarterly nut to make. And that's what everything is driven off of. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is four times a year, they have to report what their earnings are to investors who then choose to invest, buy or sell or hold their stock on the basis of that. And so yeah. when you think about it, 90-day runways to make major company decisions where your ass is on the line, when you're, especially when you're a senior person and all the way down because you know yep. people got to do their job, doing that constantly, that doesn't allow you to think long term. I mean, you look at it, th there have been some proposals that never go anywhere. I don't know who's done it, but some people in Congress have talked about this over the years of making it where the reports would be required biannually instead of quarterly, which still yeah. might not be enough. But it's this balance of, hey, you want to be transparent with the people investing in your company, but you're so concerned with being tied to the price of that public share that mm -hmm. then drives the value of what your company is and what you're able to invest in that you're like, all right, all right, do something, do something, do something constantly. It's yeah. this cycle and it never ends. Exactly. And I, and for me, it, it's really hard to, um, you know, when I see a company that that's doing, you know, sort of short sighted gains, you know, it, it, it's a lot of the time it's, it's hard for me to, you know, be this person, you know, standing on this pedestal, saying, oh, look at this company, like they're just doing this thing because they're trying to make these short-term gains because I know how hard it is, right? Like mm -hmm. I, I've seen, like, like imagine you're a CEO of one of these companies and not only do you have to beat earnings in 90 days, but you have thousands of public investors that you have to deal with on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, you got to run your, your company. 
Like, and everyone that, thinks that their investment is the most important exactly, thing in the world. Exactly. I mean, imagine dealing with, you know, imagine dealing with 500 investors yeah. that, like, you know, I mean, th thousands of investors, right? Like, it's being a public company CEO has to be one of the hardest jobs, if not the hardest job, besides president of the United States uh, in the country. I mean, I mean, how much time do you actually have to focus on your own business? I mean, it's it's rarely it's less than fifty percent of your day is spent on the you know growing the business that you spent so much time you know putting the work into to actually make it public to begin with, right? Like, I have a lot of sympathy for for these guys, and and I I when I see the short term gains thing, you know, at the expense of say innovation or at the expense of say you know, some jobs, mm. um, you know, in the case of like, you know, we're going to cut costs and rationalize costs. Um, it's hard for me to feel that bad unless it's really malicious. Yeah. Um, because I know how hard it is, uh, especially having now started working, you know, with, with smaller scale, you know, at a startup, it's hard. Running a company is really hard. And if it's public, it's even harder. And the public, like the general public, pushes back on on these things and says, "Oh, these, these CEOs don't care." And it's very easy to rag on corporate mm -hmm. America. And you know what? The groupthink in corporate America and the lack of foresight and sometimes the lack of empathy—it's a fair point. But yeah, when you're looking at the guys at the top, it is a really difficult place because it's game theory. Mm -hmm. Like you're once you get to a certain level, the only place you can go is down. Right. Everyone gets the promotion to get the promotion to get the promotion. Eventually, they get to the one where they get fired. Mm -hmm. That's how, or they retire. Like that's that's the way to end and be like, all right, I made it, right? And so now a lot of the country again ties right into the wealth gap too, and and the lack of opportunity. You see a lot of people saying, well, fuck this. Like they don't understand that, nor like they have their life to worry about, and they don't understand what the CEO goes through. That they're like, you're lucky. You you get to wear a nice suit every day, get a driver up to your up to your office, and you make millions of dollars. What the fuck? Do you, what, what's so hard about your life? Yeah. But the pressure that comes on that from the public who constantly wants to know what have you not yesterday, not what have you done for me yesterday. What have you done for me one minute ago, and what are you doing for me in the next minute? Exactly. And it's all driven at you all the time, and I, I, I empathize with it heavily, just like you, and I, I understand it. But it's also leading to ideas like socialism coming in where people are amenable to this because they're like, well, these corporations don't give a fuck about us, so I guess we'll just create a system where they have to give a fuck about us by trickling down money. And it's a shame because... While I empathize with that, a system that is as crazy as that historically has never worked and has never created a powerful country. And the fact of the matter is it defeats that entire game theory where you don't get people like the CEO starting off when they're 20 years old and saying, I'm going to work my way up here and I'm going to work my balls off because there's less – there's significantly less to work for and the rewards aren't there. That's why people come from socialist countries and they come here. And to hear you say that is, is, is very notable to me because you sat on the other side of that raising billions of dollars of debt sometimes for these companies who are just trying to make a nut and are trying yep. to invest so they can make the people that actually – own their company happy yeah i mean it's it's really it, it's really tough you know it, it's it's a tough thing to be in that spot and it's also a tough thing to be on the outside looking in saying like what the fuck like i didn't even have a chance 
to start a company because mm-hmm. I came from, you know, the absolute bottom of the bottom with, you know, zero resources, zero education. So there's there's a disconnect. Yes. There, there's a there's a there's a huge disc. There's nothing in the middle that is that is able to bridge those two things in the in the current way that the system works. Mm. Um, because in order for you to benefit from the trickle down, right? You need to be one in proximity to these companies. Two, in a lot of cases, you need to be a shareholder of these companies. Meaning, a lot of the wealth generation in this company happens through investing. It doesn't happen through your salary. Nobody gets wealthy off of their salary, um, and it, it's something that actually a lot of people. Oh, a lot oh, of people. Wow. Okay, I see where you're going. It's, it's something that a lot of people talk about within the the tech and the and the the VC Twitter sphere, mm-hmm. where you have to have alternative sources of of income that um, are oriented around saving and wealth generation. Right. So don't throw your money in the bank. Yes, the bank is great. But, but don't throw your money in the bank. Put that money to work. Now, are you, I, I want to be clear here, just so I'm following and people listening are following. You're talking about the everyman. You're talking about the yep. employees at places like this, or maybe not even at places like this. You're talking about how they can get themselves in the game if they lack some resources, but they have the ability to get a job. Right. Okay. Right. You know, but, but what I am saying is this. A lot of people just don't have the access, right? They don't have the access to the education. They don't have the access to the platform to invest. They don't have the capital to do it. Like a lot of people that I know, for example, and I grew up on Long Island, pretty affluent place. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people that I grew up with on Long Island. I mean, there, there's there's basically two different types of person, right? There's you came from a wealthy family, you had the resources, you were able to do it all, or you had the other sort of family that your your family both 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 families worked equally hard, but one of them. They just didn't start from the same place. And so they were working their tail off to be able to keep that family on Long Island, but they didn't have all this wealth behind them before, right? So mm. they, didn't, they don't necessarily have excess capital to invest, and they'll probably be working until they're 85 years old. Whereas this family that had the capital behind them before, they're probably retired at 60, 65. The, the kids are well off. They don't have to worry about anything. Trust fund. Yeah. Trust fund, but not even that, not even trust fund. Just, just, you know, they had a little bit of back end before, right? There's nothing that, you know, and and I agree with you. I don't think socialism is the answer to the problem, but there's got to be something that takes the, the resources that, that this family has and at least presents itself to be available to not just this family, which they work their tail off every single day, but they just don't have the capital to create that wealth. But the next level down from that, which is, you know, absolutely just working, 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 and just struggling to survive, you know, every single day. There's got to be some way to make investing available for those people. There's got to be a way for, you know, locating those people in the right places to get noticed for jobs that are talented mm. to happen that's for those a struggle. people. That's a struggle too. And there's got to be ways for public education to be strong enough for those people to get into those places where you get noticed for those jobs, which are good universities. 
And I mean, that's that's a that's definitely a stream of consciousness about the issue. Dude, but um, you just opened up like five Pandora's boxes right there. That was pretty <laughs> awesome. Um, but I mean, look, I agree with you in the sense that you can't force people to like forcing people through a system like a socialist system in the way that it's currently envisioned and constructed is, is not the way to do it because it's not going to do those things in a way that benefits everybody. Um, and it's not going to, it's not going to incentivize people to want to help. Right. But there has to be something. And I, I, I don't, I don't know the answer. Yeah. No, um, you, you, me and the rest <laughs> of us, I, but you, just in a whole bunch of different ways. We we could go off for six hours apiece on yeah. everything you just laid out there, which we're not going to do. But to go inside of it a little bit, you talk about the system and the the highest end of what you're talking about. I don't think you said this phrase, but you were identifying it on the spot, is the concept that it takes money to make money. Exactly. You got to get somewhere and start somewhere. Now... You talk to some people, and I have some people like this in my life who they're older and they came from nothing. Some of them are minorities as well. Like they came from nothing and they worked and they built something great. And mm -hmm. they wear that on their sleeve and they should because they overcame odds. They overcame struggles. They didn't make excuses. They worked and they learned. They taught themselves stuff. Yep. Like I have so much respect for that. Once you go through it though, I notice a common pattern where people are like, because I did it, everyone can do it. Yeah. Technically, I don't know that they're wrong about that, but somewhere along the way, whether it was their environment or their genes or whatever, they convinced themselves that there was hope. And there are a lot of people in this country who don't get that. And by the time they're 18, they don't feel that. Yep. And I remember watching when I think I did right at the very beginning of college I watched one of the greatest shows of all time to this day it's frightening how dead ass on it is and relevant to today but there's a show called The Wire on HBO for sure love you, that you ever show watch? Yeah. yeah okay so I view that as the second greatest show of all time behind The Sopranos and if it had come first it probably would be the best show of all time but for people that haven't watched it it's about I guess you would say like the war on drugs in Baltimore yep and it's it's fictional it's it's a story it's five seasons and there's characters and there's actors but it is literally like a documentary that shows this whole cops versus drug dealers type vibe and yep. how it goes down and for people that don't know much about baltimore baltimore is you kind of have your six to twelve blocks that are a great city and a burgeoning social area and mm -hmm. outside of that it is a very very rough neighborhood and the show painted the picture of a lot of different cities and cultures within the cities across america and the problems we have because you get these environments where there isn't hope you yep. raise the point about education the education in a lot of these places which is public education technically funded through our government sucks yep that's not the fault of a six-year-old who goes through it exactly i've had Four cousins that have taught in Philly, and they 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 teach in Philadelphia in in some of the poorest neighborhoods, and to see how much hope they go into it with, and then in some cases a couple did it for several years and mm -hmm. then left, and how little hope they leave it with is a very sad thing, yep. because it, it you could be in that school system and then twenty five minutes away be in suburbia in a public school system and it's pretty good. Yeah, you get the kid experience. You get you get teachers who care you 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 there's no bullshit 
Yep. And so you raise the point of people not having these resources and not having that place to start. And you are making that argument, whether you realize it or not, at least in my opinion, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're making that argument between, well, here's the capitalism system and here's the socialism system that I brought up in this case. Mm-hmm. And, and here's where I understand where people are coming from. And once again, and this happens all the time, you're painting a picture of an answer being somewhere in the middle. And sure. I, I want to qualify that before people flip the fuck out right now and say, oh, he's an anti-capitalist, he's pro so <laughs> No. Capitalism, in my opinion, I've said this on the show before, is the best system that the world has ever created. What I will say is that just like America, where we try to be the best and we don't always get it right and we want to always be improving – same thing for capitalism. Yep. And capitalism has some flaws. We've talked about them on this sitting down here already in this conversation. Yep. That said, that does not mean that the answer is to go to something that is proven not to work, that creates no competition and makes everybody lose like socialism. The answer can be something, though, that takes capitalism as we know it now and creates a system for smaller uh, – in- or not smaller, but – underprivileged environments to be able to have some of those same opportunities and feel like they can chase the American dream. Exactly. And I think, I I, I think that's exactly what I'm saying. So I think you nailed it. Um, And the other thing that I think kind of sucks about the way that we frame these things, right. In, in, in in general, you know, general conversation in, in just the, the, the discourse that is sort of the norm today when, when, Especially when when we're in such like a polarizing you know political environment, right? Mm-hmm. Is you have <laughs> such a po- you said that like so softly, yeah. like you know, especially when we're in such a polarizing. <laughs> you looked but, outside, <laughs> but you yeah, but like these words, right? Capitalism and socialism, like all these all these isms, right? They're all they're all given this political context that mm. that makes it really tough to like have like substantive conversations with people about them because you say one word or you say the other word and then somebody paints you as somebody that that you might not be, right? Based on the rap sheet of what X or Y political party um you know is is all about. Mm-hmm. Right? Um and I say all about because like even within those systems you have people that think different things. But that's that's sort of besides the point. The point of the matter is, and it's something that that um, you know if you if you follow you know amazing venture capitalist Vinod Kozla uh, started Kozla Ventures, mm-hmm. one of the biggest tier one venture firms in the in the U.S. It's what something something that he says all the time, which is if you really are affiliated with a political party, you're, you're kind of a robot um, because you you're sort of embodying these things and you're not letting yourself think about what's truly best for everyone. Um, and, and I'm not sitting here saying, Oh, if, if you identify with a Republican party, you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. That's, that, that's totally not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is if, if you find that you do affiliate with a political party, my suggestion would be that when you hear somebody present an idea or when you, are talking with somebody and trying to get to a place where you both are coming up with what is the best result for the largest amount of people, just take a step back and think to yourself, is what I'm actually thinking right now an organic thought, something that I truly believe, 
Or is it something that was manufactured by someone else that I believe because I believe a subset of these other things that identify with this person or this group's politics. Um, and I, I mean, I would encourage everybody to do that because I think it's, you know, it's the only healthy way to, you know, and it, it's actually something you talk about a lot. It's, 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 it's the only healthy way to take that humanity back um, and, and realize that what you're saying is human um, and not some construct because most things that people talk about and think about and, and, and identify and define are, are just constructs, right? All of America should be required to watch the last two, three minutes of what you just said. That was, that was said so perfectly. Everyone wants to label. You pointed it out right there. Everyone wants to tell you and put you in a box of what you are based on two sentences you say that they then immediately, like a robot, like like you were talking about, then say, okay, well, that must mean that he also thinks this is this and that, so he stands for this. And then you do it to yourself, too. Right. And we live in these echo chambers that we don't understand. And, you know, it, like everyone talks about that movie, The Social Network, mm-hmm. um, or Social Dilemma, sorry. Yeah. Where, yeah. you know, that just came out. And it was very well done. I liked it a lot. It didn't say anything I didn't already know. I don't know why people don't look into this, but that's what happens. People get stuck in their echo chambers and they think that's the only reality. And then suddenly it's, it's like, it's like hitting away a little bit more every time. And it's, it, by the way, like when, when people look at, they talk about foreign governments messing in our elections, that that's what the Russians did when they were messing around on social media back yep. in 2016. They didn't start accounts. I mean, in some cases they did, but these accounts like weren't created in June 2016. They were created in fucking July 2009. Yeah. And slowly over the years, without people realizing it, they just kept hitting them with little kernels, little kernels. It's like a carrot and a stick. And then yep. suddenly you start to believe what they say. Yep. I mean, like if you listen to Re- Renee DeResta talk about it, she's been on a million podcasts going through this. You would have pages like maybe Lovers of Classic Cars or something like that, like mm-hmm. some stupid yeah, name. Yeah. And they would build this following on Facebook, this group that would amass and, and eventually be 50, 100,000 people. And then what they would do is they would they would give you the tribal calling every time. They would say, as lovers of classic cars, bup, 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 bup. And then eventually, by 2015, 2016, they started saying, as lovers of classic cars, and there's a fucking you know, Jeep Wrangler below there and looks all innocent, we would never stand for what... Hillary Clinton believes yeah, on blank, yeah. blank, 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 blank. So people read that, and then, again, it's like they're trained like a robot. Like, oh, yeah, well, I love classic cars. I love this page. Oh, yeah, fuck that. I don't believe in that either. You're right. You're right. And and this, yeah. is, this is, like, the most extreme example. But to your point, it is, is a literal reflection of our talks now in public, and on, especially on social media, on, like, Twitter and stuff like that, where if we are, we have to be on a team, and if we're not, then we're not part of the conversation. And if we are, then you better believe everything the whole team believes. Yeah. And look, I mean, there, there, are, there are sort of two, two when, when, you, when you look at like what you were saying, which is sort of the, the manipulation side of things, right? The, the, the echo chambers that got basically started and developed by other countries trying to sort of infiltrate the thought of our constituency in the United States, right? There are sort of two schools of thought on how to prevent this. The first is we need to have essentially firing squads at these companies 
right? Like Facebook. Facebook needs to have its own like Gestapo to go in and find these groups and just basically shut them down because the American public doesn't have the wherewithal to understand that what they're looking at is is um, needs to be taken at least with a grain of salt. The assumption there, by the way, the key assumption is that everyone is dumb. Exactly. And no one has the ability to make a decision for themselves. But it, it exactly. is still a moral dilemma. Yeah. Go ahead. And then the other side is these things obviously will and will continue to exist, right? The internet is a beast. People just need to be taught to identify when they're in these situations. And the way that you do that is, is sort of what I said before, which is if you're an individual that takes part in, in political discourse or really any sort of discourse that is based in opinion, really, I mean, that's what it boils down to. You need to take a step back and just be a little bit self-aware about what you're looking at. I mean, at, at the, at the, at the absolute sort of, you know, core of it, that's, that's what you need to do. And so you have these two competing ideologies on the subject. Which one do I subscribe to? I mean, I would say this, and I, I, I hate giving you these middling answers, but I mean, it's another one I that I'm going to give. I love it. Which is... Give it. Yes. There are a lot of people in the US that will probably never be able to have the self-awareness to identify that something that they're viewing is really just a projection of something else that someone created to get them to think a certain thing over and over and over and over again, as you said. However, we absolutely need to try to get people to realize this because we can't be out there like on Facebook, for example, like trying to kill every single page for everything that any, like that for anything that anybody says. Because there are people out there that are actually trying to say things that gets caught in the line of fire. And then, you know, they feel like their First Amendment rights are getting uh, sort of taken advantage of. What do you mean by line of fire? Like caught in the line of fire? Yeah, I mean, there are people who actually have legitimate thoughts uh, that, that, that they think that they want to get out there. To, to create some sort of discourse. Uh, but because they might be close to or at the fringe, um, and because they might rile some people up, um, they sort of get wrapped up. It, there's a potential for them to get wrapped up in sort of what these proposed sort of, you know, internet firing squads would ultimately do, which is like take down this content, right? And so... What? Meaning the social media overlords. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so what what that logically sort of informs for me is the the social media overlord concept, the concept that things online need to be taken down if they are, you know, fringe things or, or things that um, might be identified as fake. Um we probably shouldn't rely on that. And so what that, what that logically sort of gets you to in, in the next step is, okay, so then if, if we can't rely on these companies to accurately take things down for fear that it's going to infringe on people's rights, 
what do we have to do? And it gets to the other side of my argument, which is we have to teach people somehow how to identify that they're in situations where they're being fed something that isn't an organic thought. And how do we teach people to have organic thoughts themselves once, once they see this content online rather than just take it and regurgitate it and, and play telephone with it, right? And so that brings me to the next thing, which is whose job is it to do that teaching, right? Like, because someone has to do it. It has to be done or else we're going to be stuck in this loop where we're going to have Mark Zuckerberg at Capitol Hill every other quarter saying, oh, I'm sorry for this information that's being spread, but I can't really do anything about it because, I mean, I don't know where to find it and, you know, blah, and blah, blah. And half of them don't yeah. believe him. Yeah, exactly. exactly. There's got to be some person or some group or some body that's going to be able to, to, to teach this. And the reason why is, like I just said, Facebook has no responsibility. They have they they, they don't they don't need to, because they're not liable to teach these to teach people this stuff. They don't, Facebook doesn't have to teach you how to use Facebook, because Facebook, the platform that you and I see, isn't really Facebook. Facebook is the advertising machine that lives underneath what you and I see. That's the business, right? So what you and I see on Facebook is just the way that that algorithm learns how to make more money for the people that are advertising on the platform. And because that's the business, Facebook doesn't have a responsibility to say, oh, you don't know how to use the platform correctly and you're getting fed misinformation and you're spewing that information and, and creating more misinformation out of that. We should probably teach you how to not do that. They don't have a responsibility to do that because it's not their business. It's not their core business. So the, the question becomes who is going to do that, right? And Is it the government? Well, I think in some way it, it needs to be. Uh, and when I say that, I mean within public schools, you got to teach kids how to use social media correctly when they're, when they're growing up learning how to use it. And, I'm, and I, I don't know that. How do you depoliticize it, though? That's that. The, I mean, that's the first of a litany yeah. of questions. I love that you're bringing this up. This is, this is, this is an extremely, extremely relevant topic right now. It's something that's coming up in every conversation I'm having because we are in that question of censorship era, but we also are dealing with companies that it's easy to paint as the boogeyman again because yep. they're the big company up on the hill have to make it, have to make their quarterly and and they have all this power and they they control thought and everything, but. Again, you know, these guys started these businesses in garage in garages, and it's not their fault that like everyone, they have a point of view. It's a question though of how do you then put something like if you're gonna put it in the hands of the government? Yep. I mean, I don't think it's a stretch at all to question whether or not that goes straight to a nineteen eighty four scenario like yeah, the book. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I mean I, I, I see I see where you're coming from there. I mean I don't think that I don't think that it, it needs to be in the hands of government in the way that, you know, I don't know like like for example, I don't think that the FCC has to go out there and, and sort of like create classes to like teach people how to do this, right? Like I think I think you do have to teach it though somehow. Like I think, I think for example, like nobody, nobody grows up, right, in in today's day and age with a handbook on how to use Facebook, or a handbook on how to how to use Twitter, and 
you know, usually when you get a product, for example, and you open up the box, there's a there's a, a, a manual, right? And the manual has disclaimers in it. Who uh, writes the manual? The owner. Mm. You know, but the problem with the owner writing the manual in this case is the product that you're getting isn't the real product that the owner in this case is actually producing. What do you mean? And by what that? I mean by that is Facebook again, they're not really in this business of of spreading news. Like they're like they they are in some way, but it's really serving a, a a broader purpose for them, which is they built this advertising algorithm, which is how they make all of their money, right? Like you know, the, the Facebook now isn't what the Facebook was when when Zuck and and uh, you know Moskovitz were were sitting there. No, no, you know, yeah, they could have never. Yeah. They could have never known. Like it's it's now just an advertising behemoth, right? Mm-hmm. And so, because that's the business that Facebook is, it's it would be it'd be hard for Zuckerberg to go out there and say, oh, here's the here's the manual on how you the user needs to use this platform, because. Anybody using the platform in the like the like the the purpose of Facebook's algorithm is you use the platform the way that you want to use it because mm-hmm. that's the way that many people are going to use it, which creates and the echo chamber. Exactly, by the way. exactly, and it's actually good for our business because if we know that a lot of people are going to act this way, we can better serve them ads, and we can maximize ad dollars for companies, and we can make more money um, because the ads will get more clicks. Um, and so it, it's not in Facebook's best interest, really, to write the manual, because no. the manual might not actually serve their business's core proposition, their, the value proposition, which is to to deliver the best possible advertising algorithm in the world. Um, and so that again gets back to this analogy of if you're a manufacturer and you have a product and you put out a, a book and it has the disclaimers in it. You want people to read those disclaimers because if they, if they, you know, do one of those things that's warned against in the manual, they'll probably get hurt, or you know, something will happen and you might have a lawsuit on your hands, right? If Facebook writes the manual and and they actually want you to do those things that the the manual says are are, are you know from the perspective of um, you know spreading misinformation. You know, they, they they kind of want you to do those things in a way because it's it's human nature, in a sense. Why do they want you to? Because it's good for their business. It's yeah, exactly. Because because basically, what you what what Facebook wants is the activity on their site to mi- most mimic human nature, the best way that it possibly can, because that's the way that your algorithm gets stronger and learns more about people's behaviors, habits, interests, etc., so that you can serve them advertising, right? So, and con- and just pure content. What and, content exactly. Are they gonna fuck with the most. Exactly. And I'm I'm not saying that that Facebook is 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 necessarily bad for this. Like I, 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 Facebook has a business that they're trying to run. They're trying to do what we said before. They're trying to maximize their gains. They're trying to deliver shareholders value. The, the it's it's really on us as as Americans to start to learn how to use these platforms better for the benefit of what we're trying to do here, which is to stop the spread of misinformation. It's really on us as people. It's not on Facebook. And that's what people have to realize. Um, 
that Facebook has no responsibility to, to do this themselves, and it's really on us. And, and so how are we going to teach that? Um, and I agree with you. It's, it's hard to do it through the government, especially when every single four years we're looking at a more polarized candidate, more polarized, more polarized, more polarized. Can we get more polarized than this right now? I mean, you'd be surprised. Yeah. Um, so where does it happen? And I mean, I think there is some hope. And the reason why I say that is there are there is a generation, you know, this one, the millennials, who we have grown up with these platforms. These platforms were, were birthed essentially along the same generational path as we have been. Sure. We've used them basically as we've grown. So we've used Facebook in its infancy when we were younger, and we've now grown up, and we, we know what the platform is now, and we recognize that. Twitter, same thing. There is hope that people in this generation can realize that we need to start actually teaching this stuff better to the next generations that, that come. Because, again, it's our responsibility to make sure that these things get used properly. And, and by properly, I mean in a way that doesn't continue to spread misinformation. We, to push back on that, though, with the most blatantly simplistic lack of teaching there is right now. We, we've already covered, by the way, how lacking our educational system is publicly yep. in general, especially in certain places. For sure. But we can't even teach our kids in school what taxes are and how they work. We can't teach them how bills work and how mm -hmm. cash flow works and how rainy day funds work. We can't teach them, to put it really simplistically, like overall, we can't teach them the value of a dollar in school right now. And now we're going to teach them the value of psychological warfare on what it is they think. When people go to vote and when they, mm -hmm. not, not even vote, let's not even go there yet. When they go to formulate their thoughts and opinions that they want to put out there, which human nature, we're negative first we have to work to be positive it's very often complaints and it's very often things that we want to see better mm -hmm. they're doing it based off of their own experience and their own environment and sure. their own point of view and the things that are most important to them mm -hmm. I, one guy one time talked to me about how there's every human in this country not every single one but he was like in general people vote on the one maybe two and usually at most three issues they actually give a fuck about Absolutely. Everything else after that, you pointed this out earlier, they'll get robotically behind the team yep. that just happens to support those things. Yep. And so when they do this, then they're spewing out, like if they're active on social media, they're spewing out all these viewpoints. They're spewing out all these different things that, that say like, oh, no, I think this, so you have to think this too. And then because I think this, I also think this. Yeah. And what you're saying right now is that we need to create, and you're using the manual as a visual, and I, I understand exactly why you are, and, and so I'll go with that. Mm -hmm. But you're saying we need to have these companies or somebody create the manual to teach people how to use it. And I come right back and say, well, okay, let's say you put it in the educational system, for example. We already have political problems in the educational system. We have, depending on yeah. where you are in this country, we either have very liberal or very conservative educators mm -hmm. at these schools. And I'm not knocking teacher, teachers. Teachers get caught in this crossfire because they have political beliefs. Yep. Maybe sometimes they don't even know they're doing it and they're putting it on their kids. So it's a, it's a real, it's like being stuck between a shit and a fart. It's a, yeah, it's a tough yeah. spot to be. But yeah, if you have, for example, 
especially when you look at the fact that these these social media powerhouses are all left leaning hard it's just it is what it is mm-hmm. let's say that they want that then to go out to kids to be educated on it when they're young and the way they're choosing to do that is through a lot of schools where they happen to have a lot of teachers who are left leaning mm-hmm. you're now shutting down a train of thought on the other side voluntarily or involuntarily and you're bringing this all up by the way at a time where and you keep using the facebook example because they've been the most prominent one over the years overall but right there behind them flanking is twitter yep and right now as we're speaking we're coming up like a week from the election or whatever right now but twitter's embroiled in one where they basically and facebook ended up joining them on this but twitter was was keeping the biggest news story in the country from Twitter with mm-hmm. with the whole Hunter Biden thing For sure. because it didn't match their community standards or whatever but they let anything go on Trump yeah. and I'm not and what's amazing th- this is the most amazing thing to me when we have conversations around censorship or even just regular political issues the insanity that we're seeing with online culture trying to indoctrinate people to say this bad that good is now leading to so many of us having to defend trump Mm -hmm. left and right i feel like i'm defending the guy once a day and there's so many of his policies i don't like i'm not voting for the guy i'm not voting for biden either and and we're in this just to be overall clear we're in the scenario where i gotta sit here and say well no you're no he does do that or or no he, he doesn't say that yeah. Because the misinformation that we're allowing on him and the misinformation that we're allowing on the other side is entirely two separate standards. Right. So now you have these platforms that admittedly have that bias and the people who run them are humans. They're like anyone else. They have their bias. But the alternative here to get back to the manual is that we're going to talk about setting up something where it's taken out of their hands, mm-hmm. which then opens up the Pandora's box of, is that the government? Is that some sort of Illuminati system of the elites that's put in there that, you know, has different political beliefs? Like, Mm -hmm. let's give Facebook some credit on one thing, for example. They have for something in their news feed, I don't know what, we'll we'll check it later, but they have something where they have a board of different companies and it's, there's literally right-wing companies in there, like Tucker Carlson, I don't know what the company is, but uh, Daily Wire maybe? No, it's uh, something America in there, right? Maybe something like that. They, yeah, they, <laughs> yeah, whatever exactly, it is. Exactly. Something. Just insert America here. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a conservative one. But you know, they have groups like that in there, and then they have left-leaning groups like like the Huffington Post and outlets like that. So these companies all kind of, and I'm sure they just. I would love to be a fly on the wall in those conversations. I'm sure they disagree on a, on a lot of things. Like, yeah. oh, we should censor that. We should censor that. But at the end of the day, they have to come to come to some sort of consensus and i think that's probably the best thing that's been set up but clearly it hasn't solved all the problems here because you have things happening where when it doesn't match exactly what the masses want if the left users of the platform scream out and cry foul it gets met with with um with support Mm -hmm. from these platforms sure and i i think look i agree with you i think the the who is going to teach people how to identify what is misinformation and I, I I think it's a really tough question and a really tough nut to crack because I, I agree with you when left in the hands of ordinary people human nature will take over and if those people don't have the self-awareness to identify what is misinformation and what is not then bias will automatically be injected into it 100% agree with you there mm-hmm. but I mean, you bring up the you bring up the exact point about these companies, right? 
the, these companies are not incentivized whatsoever to be the people to teach people how to use their platforms. They have certain affiliations themselves, which bleed into it. And again, I mean, it, stirring the pot helps them. It, it shows them how humans are. It, it's, it's human reality. What about um, when it happens within their own companies, though, too? You know, like how does that, like how does the James Demore situation help them? And and for kind, I'm, I'm sorry, just throw that out there for people listening. James Demore, uh, this was the guy in I think it was like 2017. He works at Google. He wrote the internal memo mm-hmm. about the problem with why there aren't as many women in in tech and in Silicon Valley as there should be. And he looked at it from a very pragmatic data point of view, and yep. he was immediately ostracized. And fired by the company, I think he later won lawsuits against them for being hateful. And all he was doing was saying, hey, our problem is that women tend to have other interests and we haven't figured out a way to make them so interested in this. And so you saw the company in that case, Google, who controls a lot of thought with – it's fucking Google – they just immediately went to the lower common denominator there and said, oh, he's saying something that the people who are most vulnerable will just automatically think is wrong, so let's kick him out. Yeah. So they are – like that caused bad press for them. It didn't cause usership to go down because people rely on Google. They have a right. monopoly on our attention. Yeah. But it's still – over the long haul, it hurt – like now people – not just for that reason, a million other reasons. There is a big segment of society that automatically assumes that companies like this have the wrong intentions. So they're incentivized in that they draw more attention and they draw more use through the anger that people then have mm-hmm. over these situations. Just like when the New York Post got censored, more people than ever were on Twitter trying to post it to see if it would get through. Absolutely. Right? And more yeah. people are talking about Twitter than ever. But it then hurts their brand and hurts their trust down the line. Right. But here's the thing, right? Because, again, all of these companies operate on a system where they have underlying technology that learns from human behavior, right? That's the the first principle's bottom line about what these companies are doing, right? So not only is, okay, yes, usership is up from this, you know, people are talking about these issues online, right? And so that's, in a sense, good, you know, that's not the only benefit that they're getting out of it. The other benefit is something that you actually just identified, which is these companies get to see exactly how people react after these events happen, right? And by doing that, they can almost predict how culturally things will shift based on sort of the the issues that are presented, the way people talk about them, and the and and they can essentially almost predict these outcomes, right? So when a situation like the Google situation in 2017 happens, Google can sit back and say, "How does my system react to the shitstorm that comes about from this whole thing getting out?" Right? And they can sit back and they can look at it and say, wow, like, we've actually learned a couple of great insights about how, you know, culturally things have shifted since this. And we can then train our algorithm to mimic how human behavior will change as a result. So it's a lot deeper than, like, good press, bad press, whatever. It's all just about mapping out, like, and, and sort of identifying the changes in the human experience and being able to predict them before they happen. 
Because ultimately, if you can predict culture change before culture changes, you can profit off of that in many ways. Many, many ways. And therein then lies the question of where people can come in with another angle and another example of, well, this is the, this is the problem with capitalism and all that. You create that you are incentivized to be able to drive the most attention however that is you do it just like you know the jerry springer show doesn't exactly show the best in human beings and a lot of it's an act but guess what people watching he knows it's because he's going to incentivize people to say oh my god that's crazy i want to get i need to get my two eyeballs on that and spend a half hour on this mm -hmm. show you know like that's it's the reality and right now though it also opens up the question we talk about censorship with specific posts and and trains of thought fine but People, communities, billions of people use these platforms. Obviously, like everyone in this country, most people use these platforms, including older people. Yep. And so it's where people go for their news and for their information, which mm -hmm. also makes the whole echo chamber thing a bigger problem because people see their whatever reality the algorithm says is their favorite reality. Mm -hmm. But you also have the problem of users in prominent positions then putting their opinions out there, which is just speech, and it's mm -hmm. it could be labeled hate speech sometimes. And you know what? Once in a while, when it's directly meant to cause harm to other people, yep. which is a very slippery slope of a phrase right there that people use to their advantage when they want to deplatform people. But anyway, when they put this stuff out there, these companies have the power to deplatform them. Exactly. And so for yep. a long time, because of the left or wing bias that these companies had, it was happening to right-wing figures. And to be fair, it was happening to far right-wing figures. You saw people like Milo Yiannopoulos yep. get deplatformed. Milo, you know, he's a provocateur. He, he, he's a bit of a psycho. Like, he knew some of the things he was doing. And there might have been some situations where you could say, hey, you were really trying to incentivize people right there. And, like, he got in trouble for the Leslie Jones thing mm -hmm. on Twitter, where yep. Leslie Jones from SNL was beefing with him, and he... She's she's a tall black woman, and I, I don't remember what he said, but it, he made some sort of racial intonation and was yeah. telling his followers to go abuse her online, which mm -hmm. I think he was joking about it, but it goes back to the, the platform saw that it happened, and they made the assumption that his followers are too stupid to see that he's joking, mm -hmm. which opens up the other side of the argument. But it's not just the conservative figures now. It's not just the most controversial figures, the Milos and the Alex Joneses. We saw, I mean, this broke yesterday, I guess. Brett Weinstein it was yep. deplatformed from Facebook. Did you see this? Yeah. Yep. So the, the, Brett Weinstein, for a little bit of context, I, I may still have this, this tab up here because I was looking at it last night. Yes, I do. But Brett Weinstein is a prominent liberal professor. Mm -hmm. He was most known for being a professor at Evergreen State College, and he is a true, like, when you look at it and say that conservatives and liberals have to exist and wh whoever's in between has to exist, you want people who are doing it for the right reasons, meaning those back 10% on each side are usually the sociopaths that you only let in because of free speech and it's important to keep them in the conversation. Yep. But the people who exist past that, who may be very strong on one side or the other, you want them there because they're there for the right reasons and they're there to be a check and balance to each other. Yep. Brett Weinstein is a very 
good, true, traditional liberal professor. And he worked at Evergreen State College, as I said, which is one of the more progressive schools in the entire country. It's been called an experiment in some ways. Mm -hmm. And he rose to fame, what was this, like three and a half years ago, something like that, when at Evergreen State College, I think the context was the students were saying, like, the, the black community on campus, maybe it was under the tag of, like, Black Lives Matter. I, I don't think it was. It was, like, some sort of, like, diversity coalition on campus yep, representing yep. The, the black students on campus. They wanted to have a day of white absence or something mm-hmm. like that, meaning that regardless of who you were, president of the university, professor, student, they wanted a day where only the black people, students and professors, were allowed on campus. Mm-hmm. And Brett Weinstein, Jewish guy, was thinking to himself, hmm... I don't like the sound of this because, you know, he, he understands his own heritage. He knows what it's what it's like as well to be able to be singled out for your own ba- racial background. And he was like, mm-hmm. this is on the basis of color of skin telling people that they cannot go where they work and where they have a purpose. And so he had the audacity to write an email to the overall community saying, hey, here's why I have an issue with this. Let's talk about it. And I don't want to do that. And so what did the students do? They rioted. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it was, in fairness, this was an extreme example. It got out of control. I mean, they were carrying weapons and shit. They were hunting for him on campus. It ended with him and he loved the university. It ended with him and his wife having to step down from their positions to get the fuck out of there. Mm -hmm. And he became a big advocate for free speech. Guy remains a good, true liberal to this day. But he has the audacity now to go out there in public and point out where, like, far leftism goes too far. Mm-hmm. And he points out far rightism, too, mm-hmm. you know, equally. But he says all these things, and it doesn't quite match the line of thinking that says, hey, automatically, if you're a, 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 a left agenda or a left organization, whatever you say is good, because we'll play the intersectionality curve, and the lower you are down it, the more we're going to say, get on with it, sister. Awesome. And so because of that, he's become a little bit controversial, which is ridiculous. But yesterday, to land the plane here, he was evicted from Facebook. He, he tweeted out, he said, I have been evicted. It's right up here. I've been evicted from Facebook. No explanation. No appeal. I have downloaded my information and see nothing that explains it. And he points out in the tweet, goes on to say, we are governed now in private by entities that make their own rules and are answerable to no process. Disaster is inevitable. We are living it. Now, the message that Facebook sent him said, your account has been disabled. You can't use Facebook because your account or activity on it didn't follow our community standards, Mm -hmm. which they are a private company. They're allowed to define that. But they say, we have already reviewed this decision and it can't be reversed. To learn more about the reasons we disable accounts, visit our community standards. So they don't give him the specific reasons. As far as we know, they gave him no warning about this. We know he's tweeted out nothing racist or nothing anything like that. The guy is, 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 is a true liberal. He just talks about free speech a lot. And they decided that we have already reviewed this decision and it can't be reversed, which is patently false because they control their online server and system. And if they want to put his account back up, they can do it. Mm-hmm. But this is the shit that happens now. We're not talking about loonies on the right. We're talking about they're even coming after people on the left who just have just don't quite want to say that, well, you know, that, or, 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 or they say, well, maybe not all of what we think is actually true. And so 
I agree with our original point here that these companies didn't ask for this control and they didn't know it when they were in a garage, mm-hmm. but they have it now and now they are they are clearly appealing to a side and causing causing anger on the right, which is a disaster because that's what leads to division in, in this country. So, I mean, do you think they should be censoring accounts? Not should they be censoring accounts, but can they do this and how do we fix it? Like, yeah. is this a reality? Yeah, well... To answer your question of can they do it, they absolutely can. And the reason why is, I mean, it's, it's, there are, you know, when you think about political affiliation um, and what that is just in the U.S., right? It's, it's not anything that's protected. Like, like you're not, you're not a protected person, let's just say, because like, like your, your right leaning beliefs don't make you protected, right? Your left-leaning beliefs don't make you protected. It's not, it's not anything that within our our laws in the United States um, we protect. Um, and I, I mean, I think the reason for that is we, we've historically never had to. Um, you know, we've always had a two-party system um, where you know we have a constitution that allows for free speech and it allows for people to. You know, proliferate proliferate their thoughts in in whatever the ways that they that they see fit. Right? We we never really have had a reason to protect viewpoints. It's just never been a part of our co- country's DNA. So when you when you look at at Facebook, right? It's it's almost like if I if I were a restaurant owner, right? And you walked into my restaurant, and uh, I said to you, "Hey, you." You're not allowed to eat in my restaurant. And you weren't sort of of a protected status, meaning you weren't part of, you know, what is defined as protected under the Civil Rights Act. I didn't Mm -hmm. discriminate against you, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I just told you you had to leave. I'm well within my right to make you leave my establishment. Um, So there's nothing when you talk about the, the private landscape, which... In, in a way, the internet now sort of is, um, in a lot of senses, privatized. Um, when, you, when you look at it and you, you look at what these companies are allowed to do, they can essentially operate like private organizations w- within the jurisdiction of their space on the internet. And so what that means is, just like how you can walk into my restaurant and I can immediately deny you service, um, really without anybody really questioning it. Facebook can do the same thing, um, especially because they have guidelines that, like you said, they can draft, they can put anything in their guidelines they want, and if you violate them, they don't have to provide you service, right? There's nothing protected about political views within the context of the Constitution other than you're allowed to say things publicly that you, you want to say. Um, but where you say it, meaning Facebook is, it's, to go back to your point, it's a private entity. Exactly. So that is not, they are not automatically, at least as we have it right now, defined as the public square. Therefore, right. when they censor, they are not censoring free speech. That's just how we look at it because it's where the most people go. Exactly. And and to that point, right? And I mean, I mean that, that raises a good point, um, which goes back to what we were talking about before, which is, you know, social media and, and how it is currently used, you know, there really does need to be some level of education around, like, and, and some sort of catch-up that people need to have, 
around what it has become right now. Mm. You know, because, yes, like, you know, Zuckerberg does go to Capitol Hill and people on Capitol Hill say, you know, Mark, did you realize that you just created like the the place where most people go for all of their information? And he's like, apparently I did because I'm here on Capitol Hill talking to you about it, right? Like, like the the world needs to catch up a little bit. And by that, I don't mean bring Mark Zuckerberg to Capitol Hill. By that, I mean people need to get smart about these platforms because if they don't, we're just going to end up keep on keeping on bringing Mark Zuckerberg to Capitol Hill and nothing's going to ever get done. People aren't, people's minds aren't going to change. So if you get smart again about these platforms and the way that they should be used, you're potentially able to save yourself the trouble of thinking that these places are the end all be all to say and do everything that you want to do. Because my restaurant, I will never in the history of this country ever have be forced to have someone sit down in my restaurant if I don't want them in my restaurant, if they're not a protected status. Your the restaurant only... is a physical place. Right. This is, oh, I'm going to push back on this, and your example may hold water here. It, it, yeah. it, it may be true, but maybe this will change it, maybe it won't. Your restaurant is a physical place with a limited capacity. Mm-hmm. Even if it's the biggest restaurant in the world, there are a certain number of asses that can go in there and sit in seats. Mm-hmm. You are also providing a consumer service where they are literally consuming food yep. that they're going to shit out and come back later and do again at some point, you hope. Mm-hmm. The internet has the ability to connect to most of the humans on this planet. These social media networks, they don't have a capacity of how many people from this planet decide to access them. They mm-hmm. can access at scale anywhere at any time, anyone who has access to the internet. Sure. And so they also are not there serving food. Yes, they and and let's be fair to them. It's where businesses go to advertise. It's mm-hmm. where people go to advertise themselves and, and their lives, which mm-hmm. therefore then can drive them to make money through their business or through literally doing that. There are a lot of things that happen in the ecosystem. It's not like everyone goes there and says, I'm voting for so-and-so. That's right. not what this is. Mm-hmm. But it's a public place that supposedly anyone can get on and because it has such a large percentage like a herd immunity so to speak mm-hmm. of i'm making a parallel here of people that access it from society it therefore has the most attention and effectively is the number one public square meaning if someone walks into union square in new york city mm-hmm. and has a big rally with a thousand people yeah the people who pass it that day maybe you know 50,000 people walk through there and like see it happening. There's the thousand people that are there and the businesses around there, their coffee shops and the companies see that it's happening out there. Maybe they catch wind of what they're saying. But if that, if the video of that doesn't play with the speeches on social media, how much was it really in the public square? Yeah, look, I mean, it's, it's a great point. And I, and I think when you look at the context of how this stuff lives in our world, you're absolutely right. But the problem with that is it's not how it's read within our laws. Yeah. Like that's the that's the bottom line is there are there are lo- there are laws that currently govern what Facebook is, which is a, a essentially a, a corporation that prevent the the Internet as it's sort of accessed through Facebook 
to be able to be governed as anything public, right? So like when when you think about what needs to be done in order to sort of prevent these things from happening, right? In my mind, there has to be some level of change in the law in order to sort of make it so that these places can be seen more as the public square, as you mentioned, and not as the restaurant or the establishment uh, or the corporation, right? And so why does that become difficult? It becomes difficult, like you said, because of the the political nature of how these laws end up being eventually. And so... Uh, and, and uh, you know, something that a lot of people agree with, both on the left and the right, is the protected status of corporations um, in, in their ability to, to really operate freely. And so, so, so you mean like without – just to be clear so listeners understand, you mean without the government exactly, intervening? Exactly. And so in my mind, it's going to be very hard for that to change. And another thing is – there have been things done within government, meaning precedent-setting things, that are also going to make it difficult for any sort of change in the opposite direction, meaning from private to public, to happen. One of them that comes to mind is the Supreme Court decision on Hobby Lobby. The Hobby Lobby decision, if you recall, was about certain... uh, you know, companies essentially requiring um, uh, people within the company to abide by certain sets of rules that had uh, sort of re- religious undertones, right? I think I think what happened was Hobby Lobby um, they didn't want to provide contraceptive coverage, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. I believe that was it, um, yeah. and they won, right? What that sets in terms of precedent is the ability for companies to further have more private control over essentially the, and and granted, look, that's employees, right? That's not people going to Hobby Lobby, right? Like I can walk into a Hobby Lobby and I can walk out and I can still buy condoms at the the gas station, right? (laughs) Like it's not, or, or, you know, my my health insurance can still cover, you know, cover, cover, you know, whatever I need covered. But the, the, the bottom line is what you what you've seen in decisions like that is that when you look at sort of how our laws work and how the constitution works and how you know the people that that make decisions related to the constitution operate they operate more on the 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 privatizing things side of the spectrum um and it's really it's going to be really hard to dig ourselves out of that hole another thing i think that has impacted the ability for us to change the narrative in the more public direction is with net neutrality. Um, Can you define that for people? Absolutely. That's a, that's a loaded term that a lot a lot of people are not familiar with. Yeah. So net neutrality um, in the most simplest sense is um, so internet service providers, right? So those are private companies that that provide internet service. So like Optimum, to, exactly. Comcast, yep. Verizon. Yeah, it, it net neutrality was essentially um, was essentially sort of a, a a set of rules by which the the private companies that provide internet service could not do a subset of things that would inhibit sort of the 
the freedoms, so to speak, of the companies and the users of that internet service um, to do certain things, right? Um, or for those companies, essentially the, the ISPs, to monetize certain aspects of the, the providing of internet to people, right? Net neutrality was repealed, meaning internet service providers now have more opportunities to privatize aspects of the internet. Uh, they can throttle service. They, when was when was it repealed? To be clear, I think it was it, it was uh, 2017 or 2018. Keep going. Um, and so what you what you saw happen and and look, I mean, I don't I I, I don't think that companies, you know, will will necessarily do this, so to speak, um, on on broader terms in terms of throttling service or making it difficult for people to access the internet or, you know, being malicious about, about net neutrality, I think, or the repeal thereof. But what it does is it does put the internet into more of a privatized context. Again, sets a precedent on the, on, on the, the private side, not the government. Exactly. On the, on the internet being a private place that is sort of carved out like real estate for certain companies to essentially have a, a privatized level of control. And so there are these things that have happened in, in, in sort of recent times that, you know, on a, on a national scale, on a, on a, on a, on a government-wide scale, in my mind, will make it difficult for a Facebook in the eyes of the law to be seen as a public square. Because, you know, the long and the short of it is it's a corporation. And corporations are allowed to do a lot of things with somewhat limited re recourse. Um, and so to get back to your original point, they were allowed to do it to Brett. Uh, and it's hard to see, you know, unless Brett wants to go to, 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 to court um, and, and, you know, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's hard for me to see how you know, that's going to change from one person uh, or, or, or a bunch of people talking about, you know, one person getting censored or, you know, this person getting censored. It's, it's not going to, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that, that it's going to happen through something as small as somebody getting censored on the internet. When Let's you, put it that way. When you gave the example of the restaurant and you said, you painted a perfect picture in that you said, when I kick someone out there, Let's assume I'm doing it not on the basis of their identity or something mm -hmm. about them that makes them a protected – you used it like literally yeah. under the Civil Rights Act, which is great because it gives you the picture that, no, I'm literally just kicking someone out because I, I don't want them there and it has nothing to do yep. with who they are. Could we see a world – now, we're, we're looking at a world or a country right now that is roughly 50-50 divided overall, mm -hmm. although there are a lot of people in the middle. But yep. you have people who lean left and people who lean right, and then you have the people who take it really, really far. So call it half and half just as a generalization here for the sake of argument. Yep. Could we see a world where you could consider identity to be a – train of thought or not a train of thought a hell it's a system of held beliefs whereby judging that online and these platforms tend to be run and appeal to left wing whereby 
the minority protected class here is actually anything that leans right wing. This is a mind fuck, which is kind of the opposite of what the identity curves mm-hmm. are because the identity curves, the intersectionality curve, I always go back to that because it's just the easiest example to use. The lower the lower classes there, according to the rankings they give, the farther down you get, the more technically associated with the left wing belief. Mm-hmm. They also happen to get, again, a generalization doesn't mean all of them. But could you see that narrative flip now where the protected class and the precedent set of, hey, you can't just not let people use your business on the basis of their identity. Could we see political beliefs, maybe not even political beliefs, but worldviews and the idea of opinions mm-hmm. become a protected class? Uh, no. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. I, <laughs> you were sitting it, there the whole time it, like, mm, mm, no. I, I, knew, I knew what you were getting at, and, and the answer is no. And, there, and there's – I think the main reason comes to something that we've talked about already, which is a lot of people's worldview – and look, I can't sit here and give you a percentage of the population whose worldview is, is this way. But a lot of people's worldview is, is fed to them, Right. It's, it's not something that they've organically believed, and it's something that they've been given from misinformation. And so if you protect people's worldview or you protect people's identity, you're, pro- you're potentially protecting misinformation. And so there's no way that that would, that would fly, uh, let's just say, in, 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 I think, any sort of world where social media has had the head start that it has had. Um, what about protect? What about the fact, though, that by default in this scenario, by default, the people who are who are the business, the restaurant owner in this case, social media, they are inherently biased through no fault of their own. They have their own mm-hmm. worldview. People that run it, they are inherently biased towards their side of view, which means that they are likely and actually do protect misinformation on their side. Therefore, mm-hmm. we make the other side protected as well to have misinformation at least offset or try to offset misinformation, which I agree is a terrible system. I am not saying like, oh yeah, it's great. The world can go on and every action has an opposite reaction mm-hmm. and we're good. But in that scenario, it makes that protected and balances the scales a little bit. Is that Does that change what you're saying at all? I mean, look, I think I think we want to protect organic free speech. I think that's the bottom line. We we can agree on that and I think I think most people who agree that you know, censorship in its current form isn't working, they probably agree with that as well, right? I think the problem with when you get into protecting this group and protecting that group and you continue to sort of do that is you get into a slippery slope sort of debacle, right? Where everyone just becomes protected and then you're in a position where you were before, where now, you know, if if you're this group, you can't get banned. If you're this group, you can't get banned. Who's to say who is not in those groups and I think the, then the misinformation just continues to proliferate, right? Because you you can't you, you can literally just claim to be protected no matter what, right? And and there's and there's also and we have to point this out. We need to play devil's advocate on every side of this thing and, mm-hmm. and point out where we're cherry picking. Let's look at like the extreme example of say the KKK, which mm-hmm. was very powerful, especially 50, 60 years ago. 
at the time, yes, they wielded a lot of power because they could intimidate their communities and therefore the kids in the communities mm-hmm. to have a certain attitude and upbringing and they could build it out to the next generations, which they did for a long time. This has been around – I think they were around for 150, 160 years, like mm-hmm. something like that. And they still exist today, although they are smaller. The difference is there, even back then there was a limit, meaning if I were – if I were the KKK and they were in all 50 states, as far as I know, like they had at least a chapter in all 50 mm-hmm. states, which is pretty gross. But there was a limit to the number of voices that they could reach. Yep. Whereas with the Internet, if they had had that, they press a button, suddenly they can reach all these voices. Like you saw that with, with Dylan Roof, the the killer in South Carolina who had the racially motivated killing. Mm-hmm. He was he was he was influenced online by far racist right yep. wing whatevers and. Now, you look at the idea of the KKK, which is obviously they've been declared a terrorist organization. Their their speech is – I don't I don't know this for a fact, but I don't, they're not on Twitter or anything. Like they're banned from all these platforms. Yeah, so there's yeah. a limit to their reach. And what happens? Most of these people, while they were already from – the common stereotype here was poor, angry southern communities that were blue-collar towns that worked in – jobs that had a ceiling on them well Mm -hmm. they're still there now they're still in bumblefuck they're still away from everyone they're not spreading their ideas there's a limit to what they do if they had access to these platforms though they could the question is why do organizations on the other side who are for way different reasons and way different motivations seemingly similar or some people would say as bad i don't know i won't go there but why are organizations like antifa at least still protected in that they can have these platforms and they can get people pissed off and they can brainwash people to want to be a part of that and think it's out of love yeah i mean you bring up a lot in that and i think part of it is the i mean part of it and i i don't know if kkk honestly is the best example because you know, the KKK were going out and they were lynching people and they were killing people and they were actually causing, um, they, they were targeting specific groups, right? Which um, had a significant impact on their ability to participate in society, right? So I see your point, but I don't think obviously the KKK is a great example. I think when you look at groups like, like Antifa, Right. I think the, the things about Antifa is is they're not necessarily targeting a a marginalized group of people, right? Mm-hmm. That is already that. in a disadvantaged position. Correct. Um and so And people be- people don't want to hear that by the way, but that is that is technically correct i mean if you want to see who they're going after the most they start with going after the most obvious ones like the far right and stuff like that they just take it farther than that but even when they do they're not at least how they message it they're not going after minorities or they're not going after poor communities now some of their actions may lead to that happening but that is supposedly not the intention that's important right right so i think and i think for the most part it isn't but I would say because they're not putting a marginalized group in a position where they are even more marginalized and they are actually unable to walk the streets, for example, it's not seen as bad as, you know, the KKK, for instance, which 
by all accounts, I mean, if the KKK had a large presence in a particular city and you were uh, a black person, you probably were doing everything you could to get out of that area uh, because you were so marginalized and so disadvantaged by their presence sure yeah. that it was impossible for you to function there yeah there's no opportunity um, with with antifa it's slightly different right there i i see i see the 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 side of the, the for, for the people who are severely disadvantaged by the more radical side of antifa for them i see it more of because they're already in a privileged position I see it as more a level of annoyance where they're not necessarily prevented from doing their day to day with with Antifa being present. Yes, the the activities that they're engaging with What about when in, they burn down your business that you've been running for 30 years and your insurance may cover some of it but not as much as it was worth and now you've lost 3 years if you're even going to be able to rebuild it and you lose the time and value of having your customer base that you've worked to build who may not come back whenever the fuck you get back around. Yeah, I mean, I think in those situations, for sure, um, you know, absolutely. Uh, but I think those situations are uh, more more few and far between when you compare them to situations where, um, you know, when you use the example of the KKK, you know, lives were lost, mm -hmm. generations were held back, yeah. et cetera, uh, from, from just them being around. Um, and to be clear, I mean... It's almost like you have to pick a side when, when you're saying things like that, and, and it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. But, yeah, I I think anyone with half a brain should at least say that the, the KKK is, is one of the most extreme examples there is mm -hmm. and historically has been around for a long time, as we covered, and is the worst of the worst. I mean, there's just no they, – they hit on – anyone who is not even a lowest common denominator, anyone that doesn't match they, – they're basically like – along the lines of what Hitler thought with mm -hmm. eugenics and bullshit and false scientific theories and then taking that to a level of taking lives. So I, I want to be yeah. very clear because I don't want people – we're having a dignified discussion here and, and exchanging some controversial type ideas and going through it. I don't want anyone losing context of this. I am using the examples to from each wing of, of the parties or polarization here to at least create a foil, but – I don't want people thinking like, oh, you know, the KKK, not too bad. No, yeah. no. Let, let's be very, very clear here. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think when you when you boil it down to, to, I think, what you're saying, which is, why are some ideas on the right seen as worse than, uh, you know, the radical ideas that we see on the left? I think what it comes down to is um, there are groups that either disagree or are affected by the most right-wing beliefs that are already in a position of marginalization. Mm. And so it's not appropriate um, or it, it's, it's, it's actually detrimental to the advancement of society for those beliefs to be continuously proliferated, especially, as we mentioned, in the the ever-growing hive of social media when you look at beliefs on the left i would say probably less of those beliefs if any um you know if i'm being 
completely honest, mm-hmm. negatively affect in a very blatant way the most marginalized groups within our society. I think that's in theory. In theory. In correct. theory. Yes. So so I think so I think that's where the the disconnect comes from and I think now now the question that it presents is is it then right for these companies to do all this heavy censoring on the right well, they're and, doing it on the left, though, too, and yeah. we got to point that out. We're, they're doing it on the left when people have the wherewithal to say, you know, we need to talk about this one thing because maybe – all right, the left is supposed to be the – I shouldn't even – let me make a clear distinction between leftism and liberalism. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make that distinction right now because there is a huge difference because sure. when I – when I've done my own political autopsy, I am your traditional – liberal not a not a quote-unquote bleeding heart liberal but politically that is where i fall just Mm -hmm. like a a little left of the curve leftism is more of the shutdown idea and the extreme of progressivism where it actually paints the opposite of progress in my opinion in a lot of ways and so some of these true liberals who truly actually believe the traditional ideology that that is supposed to represent which at the highest level is everyone should have an equal opportunity at the American dream in mm-hmm, the context of mm-hmm. this country. We are seeing their ideas and their platforms shut down because they are just saying like, hey, this this out of control train we have over here, that ain't it. Mm-hmm. That's a distinction that's got to be made. So it's not just – we're not just coming after right side beliefs that want to say if it ain't broke, don't fix it or no, I liked it better when America was like this. You know, literally like – I mean, Trump's slogan is make America great again. Okay, when? Mm-hmm. For who? What is and, – and the even if he didn't mean it this way, what is the intonation for some people that are like, well, you know, the 1980s were really maybe great for you, but not as great for me, right. you know? Yeah, I think, um, I think it all comes down to – I mean, like you said also, like, you know, there's, there's leadership that, that believes certain things. There's – corporate leadership that believes certain things those are not always going to match the the policies that are created within each of those different regimes are not always going to match it creates friction it creates to say the least yeah it creates problems that trickle down to you know the every man me and you debating on twitter about them and at the end of the day right that's how it's going to be the the only saving grace, like I mentioned before, is do people have the self-awareness and the care about each other and the advancement of society, essentially, to step back and think for themselves and say, is what I'm looking at, is what I'm thinking, is it an organic thought? Is it something that I truly believe and that I need to get on the soapbox and and speak about because it's something that I deeply, deeply care about? Or when I examine this a bit further, is it something that I actually don't even really remember where I got this from? Mm. that That is a heavy admission for a lot of people that they've never had. Yeah. Because you get, you get whipsawed. 
mm-hmm. you get whipsawed through beliefs and, and something gets you worked up and then the next thing that could be somewhat parallel to it but a little different gets you worked up and then so on down the chain. Mm-hmm. But I, I was sitting with a guy last night who I was loving it because older, like probably about 60, really, really successful guy who's taken a couple different companies public over the years. He's working on his third company right mm-hmm. now. And every time we would talk about something, he would whip out, like in the middle of this Italian restaurant, he would whip out the iPad and be like, all right, let's check that. And he Mm -hmm. always wanted the numbers, like, even when he was wrong, he was like, oh, no, I was wrong about that one. But out of nowhere, he's where I forget the context of it, but I think we were talking about like voting rights and stuff like that and and the moral dilemmas with it. And he's like, it's, I don't even know what to say with some of this stuff because you can't take away the right from people Mm -hmm. to vote. It's the most important thing they have. But he goes, we also have to grapple with our failures as a country. He goes, what do you think the illiteracy rate in this country is? 330 million people, America. And I said, you know, I think it's higher than I think. I'm Mm -hmm. going to say about 13%. He goes, Mm -hmm. all right, let's check it. NCES data, National Center for Education Statistics, 21%. There are 21% of people in this country who, and I got to go back and check the full definition of it, but by the standards of being able to legibly write Mm -hmm. and communicate and being able to read and comprehend what they are reading, only 79, I say only, only 79% of Americans can do that. Now, this opens up yet another Pandora's box because one of the things I hate about the left versus right-wing ideology Mm -hmm. is that on the right-wing, you have – it's always the answer. Oh, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. My granddaddy did it, so you can do it too. And and just ignore the problems and don't do anything to try to fix it. And unfortunately, they have to deal with the fact that that has been a consistency of their beliefs. They just believe in freedom of of choice and – ability regardless of environment or other factors or things that they may have accidentally or intentionally contributed to to create bad problems for people on the left side in my opinion the ideology becomes no one's capable of doing anything no 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 you are never going to get out of your community Mm -hmm. we feel bad for you so we have to help you at all times because you are marginalized and you're guess what so are you they don't say this but so are your kids and so are your grandkids and so are your great grandkids and so when you look at it and now you bring it back to educating yourself as a society you keep on raising this point and so i'm going at it like being able to say we need to be able to step back and decide and understand and take responsibility for ourselves 21 percent of the country can't read and write just by the law of averages maybe the next 20 percent isn't exactly like the most well thought about it and 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 i hate that i'm doing Mm -hmm. that because then it's it's me seeing the worst in people but then let me take it to another level and say it has nothing to do with iq or smarts or abilities or whatever you were able to figure out and let's say that it has to do with the fact that there are people not there are people everyone has their own life yeah. Everyone has their own problems. Everyone has their own things that they have to prioritize. Someone's got, you know, just had the worst breakup of their life. Somebody just got divorced. Somebody yep. just got married and is stressful about it. Somebody just moved to a new state and got a new job. Somebody's kid doesn't like them right now and they're in therapy about it. All yep. these things, they already have to go through their day and put food on the table and do their job and worry about it. And they only have 24 sure. hours to do it and they got to fucking sleep in the middle. And yet during all this, they also have to have the wherewithal when they they're escaping on social media, which is their downtime and their time where they shouldn't have to like feel like they're doing work. They suddenly have to make this work and educate themselves and decide every time they scroll their fucking finger, oh, let me stop and consider who wrote this and why and why I'm reacting the way I do. And does it 
to go back to the manual that you pointed out earlier, doesn't match the manual of what I'm supposed to do here. Yeah, the expectation yeah. on even a majority of society to have to do that is ridiculous. Yeah. It's sad, but it is. No, I, and I, I hear you. Um, but I also, I mean, what, what I'm also hearing and, and what I think is probably true of your opinion is that that censorship isn't the way to go either. Oh, 100%. Um, it's not. No. So, so, so like the, so again, logically, I think there's, there's a conclusion that th there needs to be a responsibility on somebody, right? Like the, like, yes, there's, there's a subsegment, like the, the subsegment of the population that, that can't read or write. I have zero expectation that they will be able to deduce from, you know, right from wrong on social media. Sure. Um, you know, maybe. And they're the ones that actually may not be interacting yeah. on social media much because they only, and well, they can do the visual and, and yeah. hearing aspect of it. So they could. Yeah. So look, maybe, maybe they can, but, but I would say probably most of them, sure. Probably most of them can't deduce the right and wrong on social media as, as well as somebody, you know, sitting in my position. Right. And so that, that, you know, sort of gets to another, you know, thing in terms of the, you know, who should be the people teaching this thing, you know, te teaching us how to use it, setting an example and, and sort of dictating things, right? I mean, like, you, you can't expect that that 21% of the population is going to be able to do that at all. No. So. You have to assume they can't actually, yeah. unfortunately. And so it's funny because this gets back to the conversation we were having about the isms, yeah. you know, the socialism and capitalism and, you know, yeah, there's a lot of things that socialism tries to force feed people, right? But if we're saying that there needs to be responsibility on some people to provide some breadth of knowledge about some subject to everybody, then there's never going to be true one-to-one -one individualism in that sort of agreement. There needs to be some sort sort of social contract for some things that can be potentially harmful, and I think we we both agree that the misinformation spread on on social media and through through our our news is is pretty harmful at this stage. It's not great. Um, but there needs to be some sort of social contract where there is a group of people that does know what they're doing. How do we define that? How do we get how do we get the general public yeah. to agree on that? It, I mean, it's tough. I, I don't. I don't know that we can solve it. Um, I, I really don't. And it, it's it's very it's very possible that social media has already had a head start on this. Um, just given Moore's law, you know, the growth in technology. I mean, human, the growth in human evolution will never outpace the growth in technology. It's impossible. Yeah. Um, you know, technology scales faster than than anything in the world. You know. It's possible that it, we've already reached a point where um, we, as humans, are foregone in our ability to sort of uh, curtail and and really uh, wrap our heads around how to deliver this message to people, because it's just going to continue to grow and scale way beyond our ability to do that. And that's um, where you start to get into you're really deep. That's where you start to get into the idea of singularity with machines and the whole potential outcome of that. And, yep. and I forget the assault on thought or the change on thought patterns and that we're already seeing, but 
you know, it's about survival potentially, Mm -hmm. potentially in that scenario. Yeah. So, I mean, look, it, it comes down to what type of ism is going to work in a bunch of different areas of life, despite the fact that two things are, are blatantly present, which is one, our political system, there are groups on either side that say that one ism is the best ism for all, and that's it. Right. And number two, which is we have a, a system of laws in place that only offers so much room for new isms. So you get to a spot where you really need to think, we love the what, isms. what needs to change for people to really understand, you know, or, or, or what, what sort of power are, are people willing to cede for the benefit of the, the, the sort of the greater good in this scenario? And how do people actually identify what things are so out of their control or may in the future be so out of their control that they actually do need to cede some power to a greater good because they won't have the ability to control those things. I think when you, when you, when you ask most people to think about those, those concepts, they, they'll, I mean, first of all, they already live under a system where they, they're, they're polarized by political thought. So they won't be able to think about these things. But secondly, the ones Rationally. that yeah, exactly. But the, the the ones that will, they probably won't be able to. Most of them won't be able to identify what those things are. I sitting in front of you probably can't, and we and we know right now that the whole social media spreading of misinformation, we're already behind. We're already behind the curve on that. If 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 ten years ago someone said, oh, there's going to be this whole thing that happens where. You know, you know Facebook, that platform where that that Mark Zuckerberg was using. Your to grandmother's like read, gonna be on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Your grandma's gonna be on it, and she's gonna be reading about how Russian spies <laughs> are are uh, are are driving you know driving taxis around New York to like hear you know shit from you know people at the UN. You know, like grandma's like, gonna be holding up her hand with the th- how do they do it like this with the yeah. Q in the middle? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and saying that there's a pedophile ring running Washington DC and it's not a yeah. Russian conspiracy. I mean, it's just dude, so you're killing me right now, but it's so true. So it, it's it's tough. But when do you say as an individual, uh especially as an American individual, right? Where we're given we can do whatever the the fuck we want for the most part. Um, in our, in our day to day, like, when do you as an American individual realize that there are some things that, that actually require you to cede some power for the the greater good to who? And, and that's the thing. Like I, me personally sitting here, I don't know if I, if I could legitimately tell you right now that, that I'm 100% comfortable ceding power to any identifiable body. Do you, well, let me ask you this. You're, you're coming up on the brink, and I, I don't know if you intend to do this, but it's just where the conversation goes. You're coming up on the brink of where do we decide, you keep on talking about bodies, where do we decide to cede control to a form of government, whether it be the government we think of as government in Washington, D.C., or a government that's set up by a bunch of silicon valley technorati or whatever or both yeah and the thing about governments well two things 
number one, when you give them power, they don't give it back. It's how it works. And that's how you see the conservative movement be able to make that small government argument over and over again, even when it doesn't make sense. Because people inherently know, ooh, power, don't want other people to have it. And yeah, yeah. what we're talking about right now, even though it may be the right way to go, I don't know. we got to get there and figure that out. That's not – that's the opposite. So it gives those people the the platform to be – not the platform, the – the credibility to be able to say, see, I told you small government's good. But yeah. when we get down this rabbit hole, we start to then give up our civil liberties. And really mm-hmm. interesting that we're talking about this right now. But you look at the last 20 years. I mean, when that tech bubble burst in 2000, when the internet was first coming in, little did we know that everything was going to converge all at once in society and form this atomic bomb, no pun intended, of change and adjustment to our mental state that was driven by the technology Mm -hmm. and weirdly enough you had cultural and geopolitical and tragic events even like september 11th line up and create the whole war on terror and all that yeah and so i look at that period because september 11th happened during the tech bubble burst yeah i look at that period as a key turning point because it got everyone angry because they hit us home. They hit mm-hmm. us here. They took down our buildings in Manhattan. We watched people fall to their death. No mm-hmm. one's ever going to forget that. And it brought, it brought the country together for the time being. Sure. Which is very crazy to think about now because it wasn't that long ago and here we are. But the government, like anyone else, people point the finger and they say, who's at fault? Who didn't stop this? No one mm-hmm. No one says, hey, you know, CIA or FBI, who, who did you stop and foil? Like, what kind of plot did you foil yesterday to save us all? Oh, cool. Great job. We'll give you congratulations yep. on that. The only time these people get attention is when they did something wrong. And so like sure. any human being with their back against the wall, they respond and they respond with aggression. And they respond by trying to right the wrong by eye for an eye, whatever it is. And so for that, the beginning was going to Afghanistan and taking down the Taliban and mm-hmm. taking down al-Qaeda, which was perfectly fair and, and exactly what they should have done. Yep. But it expanded to a lot of things. It then obviously expanded to a war in Iraq, which remains one of the most controversial wars in the history of this country yep. to this day. And it expanded to, well, what really are our intentions here? What, what does our government really want to do? And when you look at it at home, little did we know it was expanding to us too with technology because after this and like edward snowden talks about this a lot he yeah he talks about the idea of like the save the puppies act whenever everything's marketing in life whenever a government comes out with a new piece of legislation in washington dc if they name it something that sounds like no one can be against that you should you should put up your eyebrows and any organization Mm -hmm. because that means they're probably hiding a lot of things in there so our government responded to september 11th by creating things right away like the the patriot act and and stuff like that which basically was us signing away some of our civil liberties to allow the government to spy on a lot of people to be able to determine where's a little terror cell that we don't know of right now that we can stop saves lives but at what cost yeah and it created this whole concept of the government then expanding on those programs where they were clearly invading on constitutional rights that people had and instead of abiding by the law in this case not just the set of laws but literally the constitution they found ways to change the law to match what they wanted to do Yep. And that's where the stuff like Stellar Wind came in, where they basically told all the phone and communication companies, you have to give us all the data. Yep, Otherwise, yep. you don't have.
have business, and that means we're going to spy on every American if we want to, and that's what Snowden let out. Yeah, for but it's sure. it's amazing that Snowden let that out seven years ago now. And a lot of people don't even know what he let out. They just yeah. know this guy, like, maybe was a traitor or maybe wasn't and let out this information. And we haven't done much about it. It hasn't really changed. Yeah. And so now, to bring it back to our social media point, we're talking about watching this play out in front of us and the infringements on literally, in some cases, the Constitution, whereby social media is defined as the public square in this case, because it just is by the sheer percentage of the community that goes there regularly mm -hmm. every day. We are seeing that now merge with, well... If it's a problem with censorship and it's a problem with freedom of thought and it's a problem with misinformation getting out there, are we going to give up some of our civil liberties, whether it be to them or organizations set up by them or set up in concert with the government, such that whatever they come up with is going to be the best for everyone when right. we have such a record of these things not being the best for everyone and them just taking this power and then taking more control from it? Yeah, so... Whew, completely, <laughs> <laughs> completely, completely hear you there. Um, and I think, um, I mean, when when you think about when you think about the Patriot Act, right, and you think about what the goal of it was, the goal I think was accomplished. We in the in this country, I don't think we've had, um, you know, and, and you know, certainly we've had on 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 some some levels of of scale terrorist attacks but i mean like you said we don't hear about all the terror terrorist attacks that are stopped right and i think you know through the patriot act you know we got what we were looking for as a country which is we we are you we like the, the patriot act clearly outlines what it's doing and it's doing just that can i outline the, what it was for the listeners yeah, just yeah. to give some context so we have it up here i, I just want to make sure i was pulling this up while alex was talking right there just so that we don't go down a rabbit hole here and people are like wait what the fuck was this again so the patriot act uh, and i'm literally lifting this from wikipedia which is not the best source in the world but i'm taking the highest broadest facts about it that are just in general, correct. I, I can. I think we can vouch for that. But the Patriot Act was written following the September 11th attacks in an effort to dramatically tighten U.S. national security, particularly as it related to foreign terrorism. In general, the act included three main provisions. Number one, expanded abilities of law enforcement to surveil, including by taping domestic and international phones, meaning they could be taping us right now. Yep. Um, eased interagency communication to allow federal agencies to more effectively use all available resources in counterterrorism efforts, which is fine. That just means the NSA, CIA, yep. FBI all working in concert. That one's cool. Increased penalties for terrorism crimes and an expanded list of activities which would qualify someone to be charged with terrorism, which the second part of that potentially opens yeah, up Pandora's yeah. box related to point number one, which was the increased surveillance. So yeah. to be clear, the Patriot Act, if we were going to really generalize and dumb it down, gave incredible surveillance powers to the U.S. government, and it was a response to one of the worst things that ever happened to us. Yeah. But go so, ahead, Alex. So – when you look at that, and it, and it touches on something that I'll bring up that I think is, to your point, about do we cede certain liberties um, in in exchange for outcomes that we ultimately desire, um, that we see in, in sort of the current environment as, as not working? Uh, and by environment, I mean 
like everyone's day-to-day life, like society, right? I think there, there, there's something that, that, that I think about a lot, actually, that, that, that happens, which is, um, which is, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And I think about this concept probably all the time, because as somebody who thinks about, uh, like, how you solve these problems, right? Like, there's a whole, like, us as individuals are only capable of thinking about the things that we can actually think about. And there is there are potentially infinite combinations of things that could happen that we just literally can't conceptualize because we are limited in our capacity as individuals to do so. And it's actually something that keeps me up at night, um, th- this concept of not knowing what I don't know. Because, I mean, everyone likes to be in control. Everyone likes to control their own destiny. Everyone wants to know what's going to happen to them. Everyone wants to be able to see B in the horizon while they're standing at A and say, I know for certain that in X amount of time I will be at B, right? Mm. But not knowing what you don't know will always be present in society. Lack it happens. You can't control certain you, things. You can't control certain things. You can't control outcomes. And even the brightest minds in the world, when thinking about the outcomes of a particular situation, could be wrong about how those outcomes end up being. Like it's just, it's just, it's a, it's a natural limitation of the human species. And so when I think about scenarios like the Patriot Act, right? Sure, there were consequences to the Patriot Act being out there. We're now surveilled more than ever before. Um, you know, like you said, cell phone companies need to provide all of that information to the government. Those things, some people may have predicted that, some people may have not. It was a consequence that we took in return for the the proliferation of the sort of safety and the national security system that's in place today. Mm-hmm. When we think about putting in place laws that, like you said, exchange some of our civil liberties for results that we expect, right? Because I think, like I said before, I think with the Patriot Act, the results that we expected were a decrease in the ability for these terrorist attacks to happen, which I think we were successful. overall has happened. Yes, yes right? I would say that. There's always going to be a situation where you, you're not going to be aware of the potential knockdown consequences of those of those provisions, you 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 never will be. And and with the Patriot Act, yes, some of them may have been really clear, but we're obviously living in a in a hindsight world right now. There's hindsight bias in that. If you were to sit and tell me, oh, you know, all of my information, my cell phone, you know, whatever would have been sold to a, a you know a cell company after the release of the Patriot Act. Two things. One, might not have believed you. And two, I might not have cared. That's now now you're hitting it. Yeah. Because like I said, Snowden released this stuff seven years from seven years ago. Like I also said, people to this day, some guys forget who Edward Snowden was. Yeah. They have no fucking idea what he did. And he was basically saying, Hey, all three hundred thirty million Americans, you're all being spied on by the government illegally, I might add. 
Yeah. They changed the law, not really, but they're they're still literally breaking the law. Yeah. And your data, that not just your data, your most innermost personal thoughts are out there. Oh, and by the way, not even Edward Snowden coming back and saying like everyone was giving Facebook shit for the 2016 election. How were they able to sell that data to yeah. these companies to be able to advertise and change your train of thought? They were able to do it by making you click some I agree to a thousand page thing written by six fucking lawyers or 600 fucking lawyers in a room somewhere mm -hmm. that gets them not liable for everything apparently and then be able allows them to go in and harvest harvest your thoughts through the things that you choose to interact with and like and then be able to say this is your profile and here's how we are going to psychologically mm -hmm. pinpoint you and then tell brands that might make sense to be able to sell to you and then drive your decisions to buy so yeah. it's not just the government it's 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 the it's whoever has control of the technology and therefore the train of thought that now comes in and it's like well yeah do we care because right. people still fucking do it every day. Yeah. You and I do. And so, yeah. And so when you look at these problems, right, it's like, I think the decision needs to, I think we need to, to, to take a bit of a step back from the, oh, like our liberties are being taken away. Like that's like the worst thing that could happen in the universe. And we actually, I think need to, to think of it in a bit of a different frame, which is, if I exchange this liberty for this thing, what's probably the worst thing that can happen as a result? And can I live with that? Um, do I actually care if I'm getting the desired outcome from that thing that I received in exchange for that liberty that I gave away? <laughs> um, I think people need to think about it in that way. You know, as... Convenience. As, time yeah. saving. Safety saving, I don't know if that's a term, but I think you see what I mean. Or convenience, yeah. Like, yeah, what's it's, the trade-off? Exactly. It, it's a trade-off thing. It's a opportunity cost, potentially, 100%. thing. Yes. Um, and it's, it's, also, it's also just, like, a way that you're able to solve an issue that, might, that you might not be able to solve on an individual level um, across society that there is a requirement that there is a greater good out there that, um, and again, that needs to be defined. We've discussed it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't tell you exactly what that is right now, but can that greater good um, do something for us in exchange for something that, that we actually are okay giving away? Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's just so many things, man. I mean... When you look at it, you could go so many different directions with all the things going on in our society right now with what you're saying. And we focused a lot on social media. And we've gone in other places, too. We've, we've talked about the level of control and giving it to certain groups and not giving it to certain groups and stuff like that. Yep. But if we're going to talk about civil liberties and the concept of the trade-offs that you just raised – it's impossible not to talk about what's going on with this pandemic right now. For sure. I mean, look, and there's a whole litany of issues here, but you effectively, with no precedent, saw a panic set in whereby the federal government and the state governments, it's really, it's both in this case, 
told everyone, hey, there's this crazy shit happening. It's very dangerous. People are going to die and you need to go inside and the economy needs to shut down and you need to social distance. You need to wear a mask, all these different things. And when it comes to saving lives and responding to something that you've never seen before, yeah, you have to take actions that are insane. But when this started, I remember those conversations and they were all like, Hey, you know, let let's let's get our let's get a handle on this inside of like two to four weeks. Yep. Or some four weeks was the most common one, like a month. Yeah, I think it was Easter was the first the the first the first line that was set was all right. We're gonna get our shit sorted by Easter. I remember. And before Trump even said that, yeah, there were people saying like I remember talking with people on the phone. It's like yeah, you know, we'll we'll kind of have the line in the sand by Easter. That's about a month, whatever. Yep, exactly. And obviously, it hasn't worked out that way. We also had to learn about this disease and. You always have to put a qualification on this. Yes, the coronavirus is real. It sucks. I, I'm sure you know people who had it. Mm-hmm. I knew people who had it right at the beginning. I was right up with you in the, in the eye of the storm up there. Yeah. And it was some bad shit. You know, I, I said on another podcast, I'll say this, always cite this as an example. I know a guy who I was around regularly, very well, in shape, middle yep. age, not old at all, in his 40s. And, you know, he got it and was on a respirator in a coma for 55 days and actually lived. <sighs> Man. But it's real. Yeah, yeah. That said, there is a level to which it aff- it doesn't affect some people. Sure. There is a level to which it affects some people and they get over it and it might be a normal flu. I mean, the president got it and, and if you think he got it, because some people question that, but supposedly he got it and, and he kicked it in three days. Mm-hmm. It's... or whatever it was, two days, three days, meaning it's like anything else in the world. You go to take a risk on something, there's potential consequences. Yeah. And we now gave up all these civil liberties and allowed it to continue to happen where the government was telling us, almost like cheerleading us and saying, you're doing great, guys. Stay inside. Keep Mm -hmm. social distancing, whatever. And now we've infringed on this territory where we've been listening to it for seven, eight months, whatever it is. And... What 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 else does this allow them to do? Now, whenever there's some little spike, they can say again, oh, we've decided to shut down these zip codes or whatever, and people have to go inside and businesses have to shutter. Yeah. The level of personal responsibility and the ability for people to say, hey, I understand the risks, I understand the data, I understand what I'm doing, but I am empowered as an American citizen with a freedom in this country under the Constitution to go out and take my risk knowingly and then not cry if it goes wrong for me. Yeah. That is being slowly taken away. And when you look at the data behind it, look, man, if you're above 70, yeah, it's a lot more dangerous. There's still, according to the CDC data, and we will fact check this, I will have the link in the show notes, but according to the CDC data that came out in mid-September, you are 94.5% likely, I think, to live, 70 Mm -hmm. or older. Mm -hmm. And then as you go younger, it's higher and higher. By the time you're in the kids, it's like 99.998 or something like that. So I always put it to people this way, and this is an extreme example. But if you walked into the doctor's office after getting a test, and he walked in there... And he was walking in there with the with the kind of solemn face, but the, okay, I'm going to give you some news, and we're going to talk about this, and we're mm-hmm. game on. If, if that doctor looked at you and said, you know, you have cancer, whatever yeah. cancer it is, but we caught it really early, stage one or whatever, and you probably don't even have to do chemo. We're going to be able to go in there real quick and cut this fucker out. Yeah, yeah. If he said that to you, and then you said to him, what, Doc, what are my chances to survive? 
And he said, it is a 95% confidence interval on this. Mm-hmm. You're like, fuck it. Let's get on the table, man. I feel great about it. You, yeah, all, yeah, you, yeah. you just went from, oh, my God, I have cancer to, oh, my God, I'm going to beat the shit out of this thing. It's all the mentality. Yeah. Now, it's still it's serious. You got to pay a lot of money. It takes some time. It's not overnight. Yeah. But you're like, I'm feeling good. Now you come to people and, 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 by the way, you continue working that scenario. You continue living your life. You continue going around people or whatever, maybe mm-hmm. with some precautions. But now we're in a scenario where it's like, well, no, you have to shut down your business and stay inside because we just had a, case, a spike of another thousand cases, regardless of whether or not there's only like two fucking deaths in there. Yeah. And we're giving up the civil liberties to do it. And it is an, yet another, in this conversation, Pandora's box of, okay, well, what's right and what's wrong? Yeah. So I have, I have two sort of perspectives on this. Uh, because, look, I, I agree with you and in the sense of what's happened to the economy and what's happened to a lot of sectors within the economy has been so bad um, for a lot of people that it's almost, um, it, it, it's almost worse than what the, the virus can do to some people, right? Uh, I'll just give you an example. Um, my girlfriend is a chef. That's how she makes her living. She was out of a job for four months because of this thing. Living in New York. Living in New York City. If she wasn't shacking up with me during that time frame, it would have been really hard. Because what happened was public assistance was good for a while in the sense of being able to allow somebody who has a, who, who has a New York apartment afford their rent. Um, but then when, when things came crashing down to earth and things returned to, um, you know, normal levels, it is almost inconceivable for anyone to think that on $300 a week, you can afford to both live and pay rent in New York City. It is literally impossible. Like, um, and, and that's not even a polarizing statement. Like, it is impossible. And that's going off the, the um, 1,200. Exactly. Number. Yeah. So there is an aspect of this thing where there, there, to me, it goes back to our point about civil liberties. What is the one thing that you can give up so that the greatest number of people can continue to survive and thrive in society without giving up so much that you actually uh, are seeing negative effects. And, and what that brings me to is sort of my second view here, is, which is masks. Masks are necessary. You have my attention. And, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why that is. If everyone wore a mask, and look, there's data out there that 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 says a, a number of different things on these issues. I don't think I don't think that there is resounding data on these issues one way or the other because it's so new. There is data that suggests that masks will save lives. There's some data that suggests that it will save significantly less lives than people think it will. But if the narrative exists that masks help, and if masks do help. I am willing as a citizen to give one civil liberty away, which is the right to not to have to wear a mask (laughs) in exchange for the hospitality industry, for example, to operate and make money. 
right? To me, that seems like a trade-off that is acceptable. And when I think about, and we touched on this as well, what's the most negative thing that can happen from me giving away my ability to wear a mask or, or to, to not, not wear, wear a mask, mask yeah. rather, right? And when I think about that, and yes, there, there could be some things that I don't know that I don't know, right? But when I think about what the, 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 the biggest negative thing could be, right? Whether it saves lives or it doesn't save lives, whether, you know, whether, whatever. I mean, it, the, the, the biggest negative thing is a minor inconvenience, right? Like, all right, so what? I got to go out and, and when I'm out in public in a, in a place that is confined, I got to wear this mask, and, you know, I, I wear glasses, you know, the mask goes around my ears too. It's not that comfortable. Uh, cause I already ha I already have to wear my glasses all the time every day, which already puts a little bit of strain on the skin above my ear. Yeah, it's, com it's uncomfortable, but I, I, I'd give that away in a heartbeat to save entire sectors of this economy that have just been completely routed by this virus and not just by the virus, but the handling of, and like you said, the shutdowns in response to this virus. So if everyone got together and the consensus was all we needed to do was, was wear a mask to, to change the narrative and to open up this sector and this sector and this sector, I'm glad to do it. And I'd love to hear your perspective on this because I, it's, I think, and we, we, we keep going back to it, but, but I think it's, it's actually another middling opinion because I want things to open mm. and I want people to wear masks. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I'm not saying that, that we need to have everything open and people can just go about willy-nilly uh, without wearing masks. And I'm not over here saying that we need to keep things closed until everything's under control. I think if we can prove that something works reasonably well, that prevent, prevents us from needing to shut down the economy, prevents us from needing to shut down uh, what I consider to be essential businesses. The hospitality industry is essential. Let's let's get that right. Mm -hmm. um, then why wouldn't we wear masks? And that, I mean, that's that's just my 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 take on the situation. I'd love to hear where you're coming from, though. <laughs> I'm stretching out here. I'm getting ready. First of all, because we got to qualify everything. I've said this on another podcast, I'll say it again. I feel like a commercial salesman every time I do this. But I wear a mask everywhere I go, unless I'm alone in my car. Mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with doing it right now. It is, to me, obviously, and I've said this too, there are varying opinions on how effective it really is. I am cool living on the safe side of that. Mm-hmm. If I mean, look, you always paint the worst case scenario with this stuff, and that's what makes it emotional over pragmatic. And that yep. is, like, if if I didn't wear it and I gave it to some old person, in all likelihood, just according to the data, and they died, yeah, I, I, I'd feel terrible about that. That's, like, the worst thing that could happen. So I don't want that to happen, and I wear it. It's, it's yeah. what it is. And there are some people who are like, man, fuck the mask, and they take it off, and... It's been seven, eight months. In a way, I empathize with it. And you also have to understand some of those people are coming from a place where this thing has ruined their lives already. And they're yeah. like, fuck it. And they're ready for it to be over. But, dude, so many, so many things to unpack. First of all, 
the cure being worse than the virus, it's it's a line people gave Trump shit for in March or April, but it's not wrong given the time that has passed since. And you have, I mean, the stats are there and I don't have them up right now, but you have seen more suicides. You have seen things that you can't see like depression. Yep. You've seen people's lives ruined. I mean, this is going to have effects for years from now on. And so, yeah, you can't make that worse. Very quickly, before I even go into this, an argument with the mass in the restaurant. Like, I was in a restaurant last night, right? I pull up. Everyone who was outside is sitting at a table without a mask, and it was still light out. And mm -hmm. there is mm -hmm. reasonable – nothing is for sure. We, we don't know anything for sure, but there yeah. is reasonable data to say that in sunlight outside, this is not – terribly transmittable sure. that may not be true don't take it from fucking me go do your research on it but i see all these people sitting out there fine i walk inside i look at every table yep all the tables and this is new jersey you know one of the eyes of the storm here all the tables are right by each other there's mm, yep. the, the smallest table i saw was four people many of the tables were were 10 to 12 people they're all sitting at the table not wearing masks yeah and then i look and Whenever anyone gets up from the table, they throw on a mask, mm -hmm. and then they go wherever they go. I see people at the bar. They're sitting down at the bar. They're not wearing a mask. So the argument, and someone put this to me the other day, one of the more pragmatic individuals I've ever met in my life, like a, you know, somebody who is just completely above the fray here, not a political person at all. Mm -hmm. He was just asking with data, or however you want to say it, he was like, as it pertains to the mask, regardless of whether or not they... They save lives or not. Let's say they do. If your policy is to wear a mask everywhere, and let's use the restaurant example as he did. Yep. If you're wearing a mask into the restaurant, then you sit down with other people in close proximity eating and breathing and talking to each other at all times and facing each other, and the mask comes off because the mask has to come off to eat. Yep. Why wear the mask at all? Yeah. And, I mean, that's that's where, you know a level of personal accountability needs to be injected into mm. the into the conversation. And it's actually similar to what we were talking about on the social media front because you can't trust that every person will exercise good judgment um, just as you can't trust that every person will exercise good judgment on the internet with the information they spread. People are going to do what they want to do. Um, and it's especially true um, when people have been, as, as we've alluded to, uh, you know, locked up in their homes for the past three, four months, right? You know, plus more than that. Um, yeah, it's like seven, yeah, eight, um, whatever. Yeah, man. Time, time has been at a bit of a standstill with all this. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's where there needs to be a level of personal accountability where again, I think if you like there like I don't know who or what needs to be held accountable but there needs to be a system of accountability and whether or not that's developed by our society as individuals which I think we've come to a consensus that it's probably very difficult for every individual to be held accountable themselves because most people are not capable of that but but whatever that 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 body is that's going to hold people accountable it needs to be done in a way where people agree that if one thing is 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 helpful 
they'll give away something in exchange for that thing, um, which gets them their de desired result, right? So like maybe what should happen is we should actually do the work to figure out if masks are as effective as we say they are. Who do we believe on it? Yeah. I That's mean, another question. Like, because even, <laughs> even Fauci, he was on record, I think on 60 Minutes, saying no one needs to go get masks. Maybe this was like February, mm -hmm. early March, something like that. To his credit, he later said that the reason he said that was because they were so unprepared and worried about mm -hmm. a shortage for first-line responders that they didn't want the first-line responders not to have it, which we still ended up having a shortage on, so he was yeah. vindicated by that. Mm -hmm. The problem is this is the preeminent NI, NAIA, or however you say it, guy at the government, and he had to admit publicly to people, a society that's already on edge and upset, that he did lie to them early on. Mm-hmm. And so now I understand it. I try to look at it reasonably, but I understand it when people say, well, how the hell could we trust this little bastard? Mm -hmm. Yep. It's it, there. There's so many. And it's like point is, how do you decide who does the research, what their ideology is? I mean, look, you look at um, the town hall. We saw the other not the town hall. The, the debate we saw yeah. the other night with, with the candidates, it I love going channel to channel after mm -hmm. that. You go to MSNBC, you go to Fox, you go to CNN, you yeah. just, it's it's a shit show. But there were panels, and then I think I saw the panels on Twitter. Yeah, yeah I think that was on Twitter after. But either way, there were panels, and there were like political strategists, whatever. And you see these people who are Biden voters and Trump voters sitting in the room, and usually there's a couple undecideds. And the Trump voters are all not wearing a mask. The Biden voters are all wearing a mask. Yeah. And the Trump voters are talking about, you know, not personal responsibility and not knowing who to trust. And the Biden voters are talking about caution, but also talking about, I don't really know who the fuck to trust on this. So either way, even though one could be wrong, one could be right in that scenario. And it seems like the people who are wearing the mask are at least on the safe side here. We've created this line where how are you going to get that consensus of people who already think that the other person's crazy for voting for the other candidate? How are you going to get them in consensus on something so personal as what they put on their face to go out every day? Yeah, but I, I mean, I think I think that what what that argument, I mean, I, I think the issue there is is that that assumes that there's no unbiased party that does scientific research, which I think is is false. I mean, I think there, I agree it's I, false. I think there I think there are. Um, and how do you prove it though? That's um, the problem. Yeah. I mean, how do you prove it? I mean, I mean, how do you prove a lot of things, right? It's by, it's by seeing them play out in real life. So I think like if, and it, it's a little bit chicken and egg, I will say, right? Because you have to get everybody to agree to do the mask thing in order to see the mask thing work. Yes. And, and you're not going to be able to convince everybody to do the mask thing because they don't know if it's going to work, right? Yes. So it, there, there's chicken and egg happening. But, I mean, if there was some chicken and some egg and also a little bit of science, you know, maybe it would be a little bit easier for people to get on board so it was a little less, you know, circular. I mean, that's that's sort of the... Yeah, so like people may not like 100% trust this thing, but 
I mean, let's say that there was some sort of consensus built behind it where this study, this study, this study, and this study, and, and, and this study all said that transmission decreases by X percent sure. when you're wearing these masks. I think then, and only then, can you at least try to convince people that um, getting on board with a, a larger social experiment with regards to these things makes sense. Because, yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe they won't trust it. But, I mean, if five studies come out and say the same thing, like from five different relatively unbiased sources, I think then you've got a little bit of, of bite behind it. Um, and, you, and you'll motivate a lot of people to do it. Um, at least people that, that want to see, you know, want, want to see things open. Like, I, I think if you want to see things open, you almost want to believe it. Sure. Sure. And so if, if you want to believe it and you see these studies that have, that have essentially corroborated your belief, I mean, you're going to want to try it. I think, I mean, that's, but that's, I mean, that's just me. I mean, there, there could be skeptics out there that say, there's no way in hell I'm trying this. Even if, even if it opens up the economy, if if everyone were to get on board with this, not everyone is going to. There's too much skepticism. I'm not going to do this. You know, yeah, there'll there'll still be people like that out there for sure. But, I mean, can we can we move a larger number of people more towards the side of the spectrum that is okay with giving up some you know, what I see as inconsequential civil liberty of needing to wear this mask in order to, you know, potentially with, with solid probability, uh, obtaining the result that we, that we want. I mean, in my view, it, it probably would. So, I mean, that's, that's where I come from on this. I, I mean, I think I like, look, I, I, I hear, I totally hear the, the argument for for not wearing one in the sense of like, oh yeah, if people aren't going to be personally accountable, like, like why, like, and that's it's problem. not gonna, yeah. it's not gonna move the needle. That's the but, problem. But if we could convince more people to be more accountable through science, maybe through, I think we have a chance. Maybe through my experience and my reality. I know for a fact I'm not worse off than a lot of people who are really fucked by this. And yeah. so, again, your environment and your reality drives your opinions and the veracity of those opinions. Maybe that's why I am so diplomatic about it and, like, I don't care. Like, I'll wear it. Like, it's no problem. Yeah. And I do everywhere. And maybe other people don't have the ability to do that. And that's sad. But, mm -hmm. you know, I, there's a level to which I empathize with where they're coming from. Not the outcome, but where they're coming from. Yeah. <sighs> the... The issue that I run into here is that I just agreed with what the entire thing you just pointed out there. And mm -hmm. I have an issue with it. And to be clear, what I mean I agree with is that I do think you can have a panel of unbiased experts who can determine and will, in my opinion, based on the data I've seen, would most likely determine that, yes, mass help. Yeah. And so let's do it. I also have to pragmatically look at society. We've talked about it already today a little bit, mm -hmm. but um, I have to look at society and say that you effectively have a big percentage of people who are either in 
the belief system that like QAnon is a real thing yeah. and we, we have pedophiles in Washington. And then you also have people in a belief system who think that racism right now is worse than it was during slavery, both of which I find to be crazy. Mm-hmm. They may both be on the track of determine, pointing out faults in our society, but the solutions or general identification of the problem that each of those sides and those two opposite scenarios are pointing out, in my opinion, don't reflect the reality as it is, even when things are fucked up and stuff, which I'll sure. agree with. Sure. So when you have this unbiased panel come out, you're going to have a big percentage of society for whatever the final decision is that says, I don't trust any of that. And so, they won't listen to facts. So I, I have a question for you because I think it I think it uh, I think it jives well with this argument. Do you think those people will get the vaccine? Oh my god. I love that you asked that. A lot of them know, and I think that is terrifying. The yeah. anti vaxxer movement in this country right now is a frightening thing. Yep. So leads me back to the, the point that I mentioned before, which is how do you convince these people to do anything? Right? Like, like it's like if, if they check me, if there, if there are people that, if there are people out there that literally have no faith in any source of truth, there is no such thing to them as a source of truth. You will never convince them to wear a mask and you will absolutely not convince them to get a vaccine. They are too afraid of not knowing what they don't know. And what they do is they they take assumed outcomes and they replace that fear with those assumed outcomes, which are almost always negative. And the reason why they're almost always negative is because they want to legitimize that fear. That fear of not knowing what the outcome is, potentially. The fear of not knowing what they don't know. The way I like to approach these problems is different, which is what if the only negative potential outcome is that you get a little rash on top of your ears because the mask is uncomfortable? If that's the case, I'll take it 10 times out of 10. You're so but rational there, but, about but it. But there, are people, but there are people that are not going to do that because, again, they fear the unknown. They fear what they don't know. Yeah. And... They, they don't, I feel like a lot of these people, they don't know that that's what they're afraid of. They don't know that they actually are afraid of what they don't know. It's just a defense mechanism to swap that out, that fear, with an outcome that is, is so negative that, you know, it essentially blinds, blinds their reasoning. And they default to, oh, well, you know, if this happens, you know, why would I, why would I believe anyone? Like, it's very possible that this negative thing could happen as a result of this. You know, so I think you can potentially get less people to, to think in that way. If you, if you build up evidence behind the positive outcome that is so potentially insurmountable that you can get the, that that basically you look stupid if you don't at least try it. I think that's the only way that you can affect, um, you know, those people, because what those people don't like is looking stupid. Yeah. Um, 
So, so I think I think the only chance you have is again, and I mean, it's something that we've touched on in this interview is there's got to be people that step back and they say, "Look, let's think about this thing a little bit." Like let's 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 do let's do what we think needs to be done in order to reach the outcome that we desire. And that thing that we're doing, that in and of itself doesn't have any negative consequences. But then we measure the positive and the negative from the outcome that we're that from from what we're actually measuring, and we determine whether or not the positive outweighs the negative. That's the only way. Um, and yeah, you you might get you might get people to to believe you or not, but I mean I think if you do it in a way that's overwhelming enough and you make people look stupid for not believing you, then you'll get a good amount of people to to move in that direction. And I think that's ultimately how. You know, if, if we see through all this evidence that masks are the way to, to go, I think it's the only way that you'll get people to to realize that that's the way to go. <laughs> like, the, I, I mean, I think, and look, I mean, maybe we're at a point where it's it's now so over-politicized that there are people that are so far gone that we won't be able to get them back. Um, but again, I mean, I think, I, I think, you know what it comes down to is people if you're if you're if you're part of the process enough where you have made a determination that you will not wear a mask because x person said that it's not helpful you should at least have some shred within you possibility of changing that opinion because you've already formulated an opinion based on things that you've seen, right? So if there are other things that come out that overwhelmingly change that opinion, you should be able to change that opinion. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, you know, I, I think the only people that are incapable of that are the, the, the people that are incapable of forming their own opinions. And I mean, we talked about that too. And there are a lot of those people out there, but um, I think the people that are the ones that have created the opinions, they're the ones that can get the people that have essentially taken those opinions and, and, and have uh, internalized them as their own to potentially change their opinions too, right? So, I mean, it, it, it all comes down to, I mean, and, 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 you know, maybe I'm a little bit too apolitical for my own good, to be honest. But, uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'm... I'm preaching to a choir that's 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 singing in in Japanese, but at least at least I'm trying, and 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 at, and at least from a, a rational perspective, I think that that's what we need to do. First of all, you should not be apologizing for being too apolitical for your own good. I love it; it's so refreshing, and it and I also admittedly biasly love it because I I brand myself god damn it there's that word again but i portray myself in in the same light and we talk about things where in one moment someone's going god damn it that's a right winger or in the next moment they're going god damn it that's a lefty and i like that because it keeps people guessing and it's true because we so you talked about this maybe before the podcast when we were talking but you talked about this whole robotic opinion making that people do and yeah. it then can put you into boxes and that's i live my life doing everything i can not to be that robot and to reconsider things yeah you know be like 
you know, I really thought this, but now I think I'm wrong about that. No, this this person made a good argument. Let's, let's mm-hmm. talk about that. So, mm-hmm. you number one, you should not have to apologize for that. Number two, your measuredness. Is that a word? I, I don't even know. Whatever. Works. We make up words here sometimes. But anyway, the, the level to which you are being so diplomatic about this and also reasoned and and putting logic behind it has a whole other lens on it because you are from New York. You live in New York City. You live in Brooklyn yep. now and you've lived in Manhattan a bunch and you stayed there. You've been there yeah. this, this whole time. You've been working every single day and New York was ground zero for COVID in America and yeah. we were both up there and, and that whole region was hit extremely hard and we saw the worst of what this virus does have to offer so we come at it with that experience whereas you know some of the people in oklahoma they don't know that they don't they never saw that and by the time maybe they did see some cases it was like they were already jaded by the whole thing yeah but to what level do you think like let me ask you this when do you remember masks becoming a big thing where it was just fully accepted for you in new york yeah. And to what level have you watched all the things that have happened in society since with the controversy around this? And then even with all the social uprisings that happened right under your nose in New York and in other cities, to what level did that all have a storm around it where you continued to formulate this opinion and come to the conclusion that, hey, we're deep into this thing, but we this this does seem to be empirically backed, which I would agree with. There is yeah. much more data to say masks are completely good. Let's be very clear on that. And despite everything we're seeing and all the other anger in other places that have nothing to do with the actual virus itself, this needs to be something that people just come together and say, hey, we're given facts here. We're trying to get rid of this just like the rest of us. And we don't want to have another situation like New York City in March and April. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. I think, um, you know, obviously being there this whole time, I've been able to see a lot of the behavior of people and how that sort of resulted in the outcome of where we are now, which is I think we're either the the 47th or or 46th um, in terms of uh, in terms of rate of of uh, transmission of yes. the virus. Yes. Which um, I think, just to put it in context for people, is around 500 cases a day. In New York. Yeah, I think it's around 500. But basically what I saw is at the beginning, especially when it was picking up in New York, it was really, really scary. Um, and I think especially, I mean, you saw you saw communities within the city um, that were, were not exercising caution that made it even more scary. Um, and, and when I say communities, I say for, I mean, I live in Brooklyn, right? So I, I live, I live in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. It's, it's central Brooklyn and right above central Brooklyn is Williamsburg. Um, in Williamsburg, there is a very large Hasidic community. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a Jewish American, so, you know, all, all the love for the culture, but uh, the Hasidic Jewish population, they were not using masks and they weren't from the start and they, they didn't care at all about mask use. And what we saw is 
their infection rates going way up um, in their communities uh, to the point where, um, and I mean, there are other things that play into that. They're also a very tight-knit group. They meet together in very large groups very regularly. They do not. They do not trust outside of their exactly. group. Not. I don't want to overgeneralize, but that's yeah. another good point. They're very much insulated in their environment. Yeah. And so, for example, it's not like all of us out in the real world, um, you know, was meeting in in seventy hundred person groups all the time. So mm-hmm. the 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 empirical observation here is definitely skewed by the behavior, um, but we were seeing those groups in particular start to, to really get hit hard. And it was very scary. Um, especially, um, as someone who, who obviously sympathizes with, with how badly this virus affects people, but also as someone who's living in a community that was literally right underneath this one, uh, to the point where they, they literally, um, overlap in, in certain blocks and certain, in certain parts. So it was, it was scary. Um, and then also you saw in Manhattan the complete shutdown, right? It's especially in the beginning when de Blasio um, and Cuomo essentially said, look, everything is closed. Like, go home and stay there for, you know, until we tell you to come out, basically. That's, that's really, I mean, they, they gave a timeline, but it was really more like it felt like go home and don't come out until we say so. That's really what it felt like. And so it was scary. And I think, I think a lot of New Yorkers took that and really, really took it personally in the sense of, like, I do not want to be this scared living in the city for the rest of my life. Like, it, it is, it, it is a, a legitimate impossibility for me to feel like this anymore. Like, this is supposed to be the best place on earth. Mm-hmm. And so I think... I think collectively people, when, when masks really became, um, and, and I remember it because at the beginning, masks were not prevalent enough. Like you couldn't get a mask. You couldn't, no. Like there, there were nowhere. And only a couple of people had them, only essential workers. So you couldn't go anywhere, right? But when they started like reopening like the corner stores, the bodegas, and the bodegas started selling masks, I think that's when you started seeing most people go out and purchase one. And what we started seeing then was, you know, and and this is just pure empirical observation. So like, you know, I, I think definitely my opinion has been um, somewhat constructed from what I've seen personally with this thing in New York. But I think when more people started using masks, the issue became less scary and it actually started to help psychologically for people. And I think when it started to help psychologically for people, I think people were able to finally take that, that caution that they were feeling and take the scary part of that and suppress it slightly. And instead, actually be able to function in a way that was more New York style, you know, a little bit defensive, you know, a little bit, you know, I'm... I'm walking here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so I think it helped things a lot, the masks. Not that I think that they they themselves did a lot of the work, but I think that at least giving them to people made people able to be 
you know, on a, on, a, on a different mental level to handle this thing and be more cautious. Now, I think when masks, when I started really observing masks as being helpful, and again, I don't have any data behind this. So for, for everyone listening to this, I would Every, say- Every, and yeah, you know, just as a as an overall wash over here, Everything that we say, especially when we're having a conversation like this, you see it's just yeah. kind of live. These cameras happen to be on, and you guys are hearing it. We are putting an asterisk on it. Like, I'm pulling up data when I can. As an example, yeah. you said New York was the 46th or 47th state as far as transmission per day. I pulled up a source from eight hours ago from NPR.org. So we're going to fact check some things while we're going here. And it has red, orange, and yellow as far as – and then green as far as – out, state of the yep. outbreak across states here. And I just want to be clear that red and orange being the worst, New York is not a red and orange state as of today. Okay, there is only one green state, which is Alaska, which mm-hmm. is the most out there state, by the way. And then there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. it appears, yellow states. So at the very worst, if New York is the worst of those yellow states, they're like 39th or 40th, yeah. right? And so it probably lines up. The bottom line is they were by far the worst, yeah. and now they're towards the bottom. And so, Horo, giving your thoughts here as far as what type of effect they had – you raise a great point with the psych with the psychological aspect where it made people less yeah. afraid to go outside as well. Yeah. And by the way, there was the same problem. There's a heavy Hasidic community in, in Lakewood, New Jersey. That was mm-hmm. where you started the whole explanation there. And we had the same problem. Yeah. I mean, these guys were getting arrested having weddings in like the end of March. Yeah. And it's yeah. just like a little bit of common sense, people. I'm I'm sorry, but it's just like you can't be you can't be having eighty people in a small yard in Lakewood, New Jersey, in, yeah. in the house, excuse yeah. me. It was inside. You know, and, and not expect that there's gonna be an issue here. But there's New York has had so many trials with this, and I can't help but then pivot to ask you what's the like what was the vibe across the city because we just saw what we saw on the news yeah 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 during like the protests and stuff because i will say more than any other city i saw according to the videos and images i saw and you saw hundreds of thousands of people yep the mask wearing in new york seemed to be the heaviest and that is just my eyes seeing that i don't have data on that people so don't hold me to it but it seemed to be the best yeah and there were still, though, a lot of people not wearing masks. And I understand it was a it was a big movement because we have some issues in this country as it relates to race relations, no yep. doubt about it. Yep. So I understand it. But then you also had like mayors and de Blasio was the first one saying that for contact tracing, you couldn't you weren't allowed to ask people if they were at the protests or not. Yeah. So it, like if we're going to listen and it goes to this point, I think we should listen to good unbiased science on things like wearing masks to prevent transmission and end this whole fucking pandemic. Yeah. But if we're going to listen to that, why are the same people telling us to listen to it selectively deciding what to listen to when it suits their political needs? That is yeah. a legitimate question. Yeah. And that's and that's a, a good point again. And it, it and it, it goes back to why why I have to approach these things apolitically, because when you approach them politically, you get into these, these mind numbing psychological and, and, and philosophical traps that, that sort of derail you from the, the ability to look at something in an optimistic way, frankly. And so getting, getting back to another moment where I saw specifically in my experience, masks as, uh, a potential viable way to curtail the spread of the disease 
I went to a protest and I went to one because not only do where I, in Manhattan, I went to a, it was a March, a, a, a black lives matter March, uh, not affiliated really with the organization, but you know, more the term, which right? is, which an, we have to make which a distinction actually is a very important uh, distinction. We have to make the distinction, right? Yeah. But it was a, it was a community organized March in support of black lives. And it, it started in uh, Prospect Park, Brooklyn, which is essentially the central park of, mm-hmm. of Western Brooklyn, um, and probably all of Brooklyn, I would say. Meaning closest to Manhattan for Me- people that aren't familiar. Meaning it's a huge park. A lot of people go to it. It's packed. And it's one of the cultural epicenters of the region, um, this, this area of Brooklyn. But I went to this protest because, first of all, I supported the cause. Second of all, I needed to see for myself and and be present at one to understand what was going on. I felt a need to understand what was happening. And I felt a need to to see and react to it all. Um, you know, be be a part of what's happening in society. Because, again, if, you, if you're not a part of that, you have no context to make your own conscious decisions about these things. So, and I, I also want to point out for for context here for you, some people cynics would come back and say, "Oh, well, you were just locked up and had nothing to do and wanted to do something." To be very clear, Horo is uh, he's had a hell of a career. We haven't even talked about much of it today. The the kid is you're killing it, but he's the chief of staff at Eight Sleep, which is far more than a startup. I mean, it's a well funded high profiting organization and you guys are in the artificial intelligence mattress business which is a whole nother thing but you work like crazy covid did not slow you down at all so this is you like on your own time yeah even while you're busy coming out and being like okay i want to understand what's going on here oh yeah no this is look i mean out of the i don't know how many i I can't do the math right now Uh, my mind's on on vacation right now but uh uh, is it yeah uh, doesn't sound like it of the of the, you know, I mean, this this was in addition to the 80, 80, 85 hours that I work in a in a in a week. So what you're not lying was, about either. It was it was purely, it was purely something that I felt a moral obligation to do, I wanted to do, and frankly was useful to me in framing the future for myself as a member of society. Which I I mean I think, I, you know, I think we all should do. But that, that that's. Besides, separate issue, yeah, right now. separate yeah. issue. Yeah. So I went there, and every single person at this march—I'm not kidding—I saw zero people that were not doing this, wearing a mask. Every single one, and I was a little bit, to be honest, when I got there, I was very scared for myself because I was—it was—it was the first time in a long time that I had been around that many people. Um, in close proximity. And let me tell you. And at nighttime too. I mean, you were there. This was yeah. during the day. This, oh, okay. this one was during the day. Yeah, okay. this was, I mean, it was like 1 p.m. this March. Because these it, were in Prospect Park. Like I saw, I just assumed you were at some of the ones I saw. Like there were a lot at night too. And they were, yeah. I, did, I agree, they were all masked up. I mean, I yeah. really couldn't find many this, people that weren't. Yeah, this was like, this was probably the most benign protest that you could have, like this one would never be televised. Boring. Literally, mm. we just walked down the street, had some signs, 
chanted some stuff. You know, I didn't even really chant. I just really walked. And we just walked yeah, in support. In. Yeah. You know, yeah. taking it in. You know, it's a, it's a lot, a lot of stimuli when you've, when you've come from being locked in your apartment and not really be able to do anything but go out and get groceries. It's a lot of stimuli. So I was very overwhelmed, first of all, by that. And second of all, by the fact that I was walking the streets with a mob, essentially, of people. Um, and we were all wearing masks. And I mean... I, I, you know, I, I wanted to see my parents a couple of weeks later just to check up on them. And I got tested and I was negative. And really, I was, I mean, I was, I was not, I was really not expecting to have tested negative, just given I was around all these people. But I mean, either there's one of two things there that are true in my mind, maybe I'm wrong, but either number one, every single person who went to this protest was not shedding the virus. Could have been positive or negative, but they weren't shedding. Or two, because everyone was wearing masks, the possibility of transmission was severely reduced. Because also New yeah. York, by the way, with there were a lot of cities yeah. in these protests. Again, got to go to the data on this, double check. But my understanding is that as a percentage of the population, New York had the best control on transmission yeah. during the June height of these protests of any city. Yeah. That needs to be said. Yeah. And so, I mean, logically, I had to, I had to, my brain immediately went to the second, the latter, which is, I mean, statistically almost impossible that nobody was shedding at this thing. There was hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, hundreds and hundreds dude, of people. Thousands. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, at this particular protest, potentially thousands. And it's impossible that not one person there, in my mind at least, maybe I'm wrong. But in, in my mind, it's impossible when I'm, st I'm standing there thinking about it. Impossible that nobody has this thing. Like, actually impossible. Um, it's possible that I was wrong. But, I mean, you know, to me, it, it logically, I, I, my mind went to, okay, these masks kind of work, right? And I'll say one more thing about New York because I think it's important. Say what you want about Andrew Cuomo's politics, right? Because... Everything outside of COVID-19, a lot of differing opinions, depending on your political beliefs, depending on what profession you are. Teachers have a lot to say about him. Mm -hmm. People in hospitality have a lot to say about him, mm -hmm. et cetera. Like there, there, there are a lot of differing beliefs about this guy. People who, who read the New York Times article about him with the, the corruption uh, group that he set up and then immediately got rid of, they have a lot to say about him, right? There's... There's a lot to say about this guy, but what I will say is this, his approach to the COVID issue for New York was one that was very much grounded in um, data, which is something that I really appreciated. The way that he approached it, and it's different from, from New York than a lot of states, was he had a set of criteria and he created he created almost an, an index out of it. He where tweeted he, these yeah, out. Yeah. And this. he would tweet them almost every other day because mm -hmm. he would have town halls on it every other day. And he said, if we can hit three out of seven of these criteria, four out of seven of these criteria, we start to give people back the ability to do stuff. You know? And and look, I mean, yes, it treats people a little bit like lab rats, 
But at the same time, people in New York followed these rules. And guess what? Now you can go out to eat in a restaurant. And guess what? The transmission rate is still only 500 people a day. It hasn't gone up. Maybe a little bit here and there, but it really has stayed the way it is now. The, in my belief is that we needed to deal with the problem in that way in the beginning. Just to get people to stop panicking, to get things under control. And I think that the data approach allowed people to think about this in terms that were really simple. Like, all I got to do is prevent these things from happening and then I can go out and eat. I can go out and, and do this or, or that or I can go to the gym. You know, I think it made things really simple for people. And I'm not saying that everything needs to be that way. But I think when you have a, a portion of the population that is panicking about something, that is scared, right? And then you present them with almost a way out, which is you wear this mask, you follow this set of criteria, we get these numbers under a certain amount, and then it's off to the races. I mean, I, personally, as a New Yorker, and as, as somebody who is, is as free-thinking as I think I come off on the show, I felt it was really liberating to, to be under th those criteria and to contribute to getting things open um, as part of New York. I mean, and that's, and that's also why I was a little bit pissed off when I read the article about, oh, everyone's leaving the city. because Al Tucher. Yeah, because I think somebody who was, was truly, like, as, as somebody who has lived in New York and has grown up in New York my entire life, I felt like I actually contributed to the reopening of New York through my actions. Is it reopened, though? I mean, and, and, and hold on, I, I want to actually yeah. address that because, uh, once again, you threw out. I don't know, 10 different nuanced issues there. And I think everyone's mind, especially if they're of the opposite political belief or political savage, meaning they hate them all, mm -hmm. which I'm close to. I would not say that quite, but, you know, I have to check myself on that because yeah, it's very yeah. easy for me to just say, fuck them all. But if you look at it diplomatically with what Cuomo's response was, a, this was a new thing. Mm -hmm. B, it was a new thing, as in, like, not just the virus is a new thing, but this has never happened before in this kind of size of a population, in this type of world, with this much mobility and yep. people with the ability to transmit such a thing. And C, you can't lie about them getting the transmission in check. Now I go to the other side, not even of the argument, the other side of the devil's advocate here. Which is, and I, I probably will forget how to repeat this line exactly how you said it, so mm -hmm. correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong here. But you were like, he was saying, if you guys do this, then I will give you this stuff back. Yeah, no, that, that's how I phrased it. Okay. Sure. And the argument there gets into, we talked about this earlier somewhere in one of our million rabbit holes in this conversation. But the argument there then becomes, well... What else can they take and what else can the government take in the future? Mm -hmm. If they can take people's ability to earn or make a decision for themselves or decide to use their own liberty to take risks in society, like, do you, yeah. do you stop yeah. the people from going to skydive who want to go skydive? I have no interest in skydiving, right? Mm -hmm. But I also 
you know, I'm also, if I'm being self-aware, I'm someone who doesn't, it's very hard to get leverage over me. I don't yeah, really yeah, yeah. care. I'm, I'm not, I have a very interesting concept of death. Like, I'm really weird at heights. Mm-hmm, me so, too. So, so skydiving, like, is out because I just think it's the weirdest feeling. Like, yeah, I won't do yeah. it. But if I walked out, my attitude is if I got walk, if I walked out and got hit by a car, oh, okay. You know, yeah. that sucks. But we'll see what happens next if there is anything next, which is weird. So, maybe not weird, but a lot of people don't think like that. They fear it. Yeah, yeah. And I try to level with that and then say, okay, well, to what degree are we letting governments determine our free will yeah and to what degree are they looking out for a lot of the people who don't think like i think and so the government their job is to protect the people right that's Mm -hmm. that's in the job description so under that if i believe and i'm pretty sure i'm right about this most people don't think like i think in that Mm -hmm. scenario when Mm -hmm. it comes to death then by the percentages he is probably doing the right thing you just get that civil liberties argument again to come in because yeah. the cynics, especially people who are on the right wing, are going to come at it and say this guy is is a you know he's holding the peasant Avante on a string here, yep. and we're all puppets and we're all under his control and you know they'll call him you know Andrew Stalin. Yeah, and it's so it's like, what do I even do? Like like yeah. what side do I look at here? So for you and let's let's also get some of the political footballs out there too. I mean, you hear like Trump talk about this all the time, and I don't know any of the facts around it. I know nothing about what I'm about to say, but you'll hear mm-hmm. him say mm-hmm. Cuomo sent all the all the people to the nursing homes. I don't know what was happening. I don't know f- how fast decisions have to be made. In the same way that I don't fault Trump as much as other people do for the response, because it's like crazy what happened here. Yeah. You know, I also like what are we going to do? Then hold Cuomo to a higher standard when he took him from first rated transmission to at least 39th or better? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's you see what I'm saying? I'm just yeah. confused. I mean, look, for, firstly, I think with regards to nursing homes, man, I think all nursing homes were doomed. <laughs> Like, if you go yeah. down to Florida, if you go to, up to New York, if you go anywhere, and you look at what happened in nursing homes, there was no nothing that you could have done unless you were God Himself, yeah, to stop from from nursing homes being completely decimated. So I, I think, so and so, we're not uh, we're not laughing out of yeah, fuck the nursing yeah. home. It's no. just like it's like what do you? It's yeah. like exasperation. What do you even do? Yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think. I think in that sense, I mean, yeah, I mean, politics is always going to get in the way of, of these things. But I think, I think the, you know, going back to, to what you said about civil liberties, right? Because I think that's where the, the argument, you know, currently lies, right? I think, I think when you, when you look at, for example, right, when you look at skydiving versus going to a restaurant without a mask on, if we're going to just talk two comparison activities, right? I think, yes, they're both choices that you make as an individual, right? And you have the you have the liberty to go skydiving and you have the liberty to go into a public establishment, but, you know, COVID not, you know, COVID restrictions not part of the equation. You have a, you have a, the liberty to, to, to go or do whatever you want, right? And make those choices. They're both choices. However, if, if I go skydiving, and I die, right? Um, or if I just go skydiving at all and I don't die, the the only real person that's affected by that choice 
is is myself. Minus and, and minus the grief you give people who love exactly you. Okay. exactly yeah. minus that grief. Yes, right. Agree. If I walk into an establishment and I have COVID, I'm putting other people at risk, and I'm I'm not I'm not putting. You know, it, it, it's it, it transcends grief. I have literally, literally can give you the virus. And another thing that I've seen, and again, this needs to be backed by data. But another thing that I've seen with regards to the virus is it's had a lot of lasting effects on some of the people that I associate with. And so, for example, I have a friend who had it. He had it about four months ago. Call it, uh, you know, I think it was like, I think it was around the July timeframe when he had it. Even today, he gets winded from doing a couple of push-ups. And this is a guy that is you know, six foot two, 150 fit guy, probably even, you know, for, for his size, you know, super, super slim, like no body fat whatsoever. And, and this guy is getting winded from doing a couple push-ups or a couple of, a couple of pull-ups. And you got to think when you see those types of things, like, it's not like this guy's faking this. Like, no, he wants to go to the gym and, and, and he wants to, you know, this was a guy that was that was a relatively fit guy. He still is, but you know, there are some lasting effects to this thing. Like you, you don't, if you are, and and it goes back to what we were talking about because I think if if you are the leader of a municipality like a, a De Blasio or like a Cuomo, and I'm going to particularly talk about Cuomo here because I don't I don't I don't want to touch De Blasio <laughs> with a ten foot pole during this discussion, but. Um, but I think you, you, if if the choice that that someone is making is actually going to affect other people without them willingly knowing about it, within some within an area that's in that's your, key. your, your jurisdiction them, without them willingly exactly. know about it, you are injecting your own beliefs or yeah. personal preferences on them. Yeah, I, I think you have to. You, you, I mean, at that point, I think it, it's almost justified to do what's necessary to to stop that from happening. And so, and so that's why, as a free-thinking individual, I was actually somewhat relieved by Cuomo's actions and by the, the point system. Because while it looks on the outside to be a very restrictive thing... Keep going. I'm going to pull something up. I actually felt like it was a liberating thing in the sense that this guy is realizing that my health and safety is more important than someone's stupid decision to go into an establishment or to breathe on somebody else while they themselves may or may not know that they have the virus and then they may or may not know that they're giving that virus to somebody else. So for me, I actually felt reassured. And that's sort of my stance. Once again, you say a bunch of things that I have a very hard time disagreeing with. I, I, I think if there's one thing I'm very thankful I was not during this period is a politician on any level and in a position yeah, yes. around decision making or God forbid to have to make a decision. 1000%. Because you are going to, I mean, the hatred you are going to get no yeah. matter what you do is insane. So I empathize with all these guys. I don't care what fucking party they're in. Yeah. I empathize with all of them. Um, and by the way, they're all also 
at fault for it as well because they fight against and yell at the other person along party lines over a, a, a health crisis issue, which is like insanity, but mm-hmm. okay. It comes back once again, though, to looking at these more extreme examples like yeah, in New York yeah. and seeing where it goes. And what I would argue is that, you know, we, we brought up, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes ago, something like that, the, the Altucher mm-hmm. post. Now, to give context around that first, I talked about this on a podcast I did a couple days ago with Mitch Laxamana, but James Altucher is a really interesting guy. He's like a... He owns a comedy club in New York, but he's like a venture capital guy too, like very, very smart. And he wrote this piece, I think on his LinkedIn in the beginning of August that was called New York City is Dead and it's it's never coming back. I'll put – I will hopefully remember to put the link to that in the show Mm -hmm. notes for this. But the article was this maybe 3,000-word piece with all kinds of empirical data as to what the fuck is going on in New York and why it's such a disaster. And this is from a lifelong New Yorker. He was born and raised in New York City and never left. Sure. In late July, he or in July, I think, after especially after the protests and everything, he got out and he went to Florida for the first time and he and his wife were deciding, like, I think we're going to stay here. And he said, I have a lot of friends who are too. I have a lot of, I know of a lot of companies that just left and they're never going back to these offices. Mm-hmm. Talking to my commercial real estate guys in New York, I mean, that's a fact. The, the numbers support that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for and, sure. And, you know, that's a whole other can of worms. I'm not going to go there right now. Mm-hmm. But it ended up creating this public thing because the New York Post went to... They've been in the middle of a lot of shit the last few months. But they <laughs> went to Altucher, this LinkedIn guy, and said, can we post your story in, in the New York Post? He said, yeah. So he posted yeah. it, and then there was a whole outcry between people going, amen, yeah, unfortunately, he's right, and New York City's got a problem, and then people going, fuck that. And so the leaders of the fuck that movement were backed by Jerry Seinfeld, mm-hmm. the famous comedian who loved Jerry Seinfeld. Yep. And Seinfeld came back in the New York Times, even picked another newspaper, <laughs> and wrote this like 300-word piece that basically like with no evidence was just like, fuck you, Jim. Yeah, like you yeah. little LinkedIn. I, th- I think he said some putts on LinkedIn. And <laughs> no disrespect to Seinfeld, but Seinfeld was on Long Island this whole time. He was not in New York City. Yeah. He was outside of the whole thing. And it doesn't even mean he's wrong, but he presented no evidence to go back against it. Yeah. Now, I don't agree with Altucher's assessment that it's dead. I think yeah. it's going to need to be rebuilt, and it's going to take a lot of us to do it, and I want to be a part of that solution. I fucking love that city. I leave it For right sure. here on the headphone amp to look at it every day because I miss it like crazy. I love the mm-hmm. energy. I love everything about it. we got to rebuild the best city in the world. For sure. But he raises the point of people who have decided to leave and people who have decided that civil liberties have been taken too far. And the crazy thing is that there is actually a far worse example, it appears, based on the data and the sentiment and the lack of defending the politicians in this scenario on the West Coast out in California. In San Francisco. In San Francisco is another one, and I know a little less about that, so you can expand upon that. I'll even focus on L.A. as a microcosm of the whole thing. L.A. Mayor Garcetti has been incredibly strict. I mean, they had the thing where they were... There were some TikTok kids who were fucking partying in their mansion and they decided to turn off their electricity and shit, just like (laughs) the government decided to do that. And Gavin Newsom, the governor, has been caught in the middle of all this. In defense of Gavin... It feels to me, and I could be totally wrong about this. It's my little yeah. conspiratorial aspect of this. It feels to me like he's not calling the shots on this. It feels to me, he feels so forced on it. Yeah. And, and he's, he's demonized there now. I mean, his political career is over. And it just does, like, he's always struck me as, like, kind of a diplomatic guy. And 
the level to which not just LA, but California as a whole has taken this out of control is what's leading people to have this conversation and say, fuck this shit, no matter the data. Yeah. There was some guidance, and that's what I said. I was I was like, keep talking, I'm gonna pull mm-hmm. something up. Mm-hmm. There was some guidance released by the state of California. This is the state of California Health and Human Services Agency, California Department of Public Health. This is on October 9th, 2020, and it is addressed to all Californians with a subject of guidance for private gatherings. I want to bring you through this and break this down because this is the definition of the slippery slope and how far can they go. Yeah. yeah. So this was updated. They gave guidance in March and then again in September. At least that's what they list here. And this is now the most recent one. And so with holiday season coming up, this is what they chose to say. It says, the subject line is mandatory requirements for all gatherings. And they say, all persons planning to host or participate in a private gathering, as defined above, must comply with the following requirements. Must comply. Listen to the language here. Yeah, yeah. Meaning, they're, you know, they'll, they'll sick the, the cops on you here. Local health jurisdictions may be more restrictive than this guidance, so they also give the right for other places to put out even more rules, but they say refer to your local guidance for what is allowed in your area beyond just this. That is me adding the words beyond just this. Number one, attendance. Gatherings that include more than three persons are prohibited. Three ho- th- more than three households, excuse me, are prohibited. Yeah. Three households are prohibited is bolded in this case. Link will be in the show notes once again. Does, I mean, is that even defined within this document? I, I haven't read this. Oh, oh I, I'm, I'm going to keep going. Okay. Let, let, okay. The, let this go. This includes everyone present, including hosts and guests. Remember, the smaller the number of people, the safer. So they even get preachy there. Keep the households that you interact with stable over time. By spending time with the same people, risk of transmission is reduced. Participating in multiple gatherings with different households or groups is strongly discouraged. So let's review so far. They are telling you you can never have more than three households in a gathering. So guess what? If you want to get together for Christmas and you're one of four kids and you want to go to your parents' house, two of you are shit out of luck. So the favorite children syndrome is going to come out and we're going to find out who those were. The second thing they're saying there is keeping it, saying is keep it stable. So guess what? In that same example the two families that got left out they they shouldn't be fucking going around yeah you know and and it's more guidance the second one rather than pure compliance there but still how how but i mean this just strikes me as so like how how do you define a household because in that scenario that you mentioned right where you got four kids they've got all different families they're not living under the same not living under the same roof exactly yes in my mind that's, yeah, that's my household. Yeah. These are my kids. Yeah, they have their own families. They're not in my space. But Great. I mean, these are my kids. Great question. You know, I, I, and, and this, let, let's go, let's yeah, go let, through let, it. Let's, let's get through it and then yeah, we'll break yeah, it down. Yeah, yeah. Next, the host should collect all names of all attendees and contact information in case contact tracing is needed later. Number two, gather outdoors. Gatherings that occur outdoors are significantly safer than indoor gatherings. All gatherings must be held must be held outside. So you can't guess what? Even if it's cold up in Northern California and you're doing Christmas, too fucking bad. Go out in the snow. Attendee, which you know can't catch cold out there, right? <laughs> Attendees may go inside to use restrooms as long as the restrooms are frequently sanitized. Whatever that means. 
Gatherings may occur in outdoor spaces that are covered by umbrellas, canopies, awnings, roofs, and other shade structures, provided that at least three sides of the space, or 75%, are open to the outdoors. So we're going, like, what if what if two sides are longer than another side, and the fourth side's the smallest? Is that 75%? I don't know. A gathering of no more than three households is permitted in, in a public park or outdoor space, even if unrelated gatherings of other groups up to three households are also occurring in the same the park. Fuck? Dude, or other outdoor space. If mu- we're finishing this whole thing, people need to hear this. If multiple such gatherings are occurring, mixing between group gatherings is not allowed. Additionally, multiple gatherings of three households cannot be jointly organized or coordinated to occur in the same public park or other outdoor space at the same time. This would constitute a gathering exceeding the permitted side. The last, the permitted size. The last two sections here. I'm not going to go through all these. Don't attend gatherings if you feel sick. I'm not going to read that segment. That sounds exactly like it is. I think that's common sense. Everyone can agree with that one. Practice physical distancing and hand hygiene at gatherings. That's another segment. I'm not going to read. It's all pretty clear. Wear a face covering to keep COVID-19 from spreading. Again, not going to read that one. Pretty clear. Number six, keep it short. Gatherings should be two hours or less. The longer duration, the duration, the risk of transmission increases. They're telling you how long you can get together. Number seven, though, is by far my favorite. Number seven is just, it's one of the most beautiful things I've, I've ever read in my life. Number seven is rules for singing, chanting, and fucking shouting at outside, at outside gatherings. The fucking was added in there by me. The state of California did not say that, so don't give them credit for that one. Anyway, singing, chanting, shouting, and physical exertion significantly increases the risk of COVID-19 transmission. Don't work out, people, because these activities increase the release of respiratory droplets and fine aerosols. We just said 21% of this country can't read. I don't know what the fucking aerosols is, but anyway, let's aerosols, continue. Aerosols. Aerosols. Oh, it's aer... Sorry, my eyes are really bad right now. The guy with the glasses is correcting me. Either way, I, I don't even know what an aerosol is. Into the air. Because of this, singing, chanting, and shouting are strongly discouraged, but... Here we go. But if they occur, the following rules oh, and no. recommendations apply. Gavin, what are you doing? All man? people who are singing or chanting should wear a face covering at all times while singing or chanting including anyone who's leading a song or chant because these act i love ch- what is a chant anyway because it's it's like they're they're making sure they appeal to every culture which okay fine it's uh it's like you know let's go yankees okay yeah. fine yeah, all right yeah that's every culture right there yeah because these activities posed a ve- pose a very high risk of covid19 transmissions face coverings are essential to reduce the spread of respiratory droplets and fine aerosols there it is people who are singing shouting chanting or exercising are strong encouraged to maintain physical distancing between six feet to further reduce the risk. I wonder if you could get arrested if you don't do that. People who are singing or chanting are strongly encouraged to do so quietly. <laughs> People who are singing or chanting are strongly encouraged to do so quietly at the at or below the volume of a normal speaking voice. So hold on, let me let me just do. Is this Etta James or whoever? It's not Etta James, but it's somebody. I forget the, her fucking name. But so if I'm gonna sing, I will survive. It's not. I will survive. It's like I will survive. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Look. So do you understand what I'm saying? Let me land this plane right now. 
this is the slippery slope right here. If I, and, and I'll relate this to other stuff. I've talked about this one. There's themes that can just get hit yeah, all day on yeah. this. If you're a Second Amendment person and you want a case study for what happens when they come for a gun, like an AK-47 or something like that, which I don't think anyone should have, but the idea that the slippery slope means they'll come for the next one, here's your fucking case study, pal. Yeah, but, I mean, my, my question for you is when you see this, how can you not appreciate what Cuomo's done? I mean, the none of this, none of this is grounded in any sort of data. It's all just absolute bullshit. Like, the... The, there's no, there's no, it, it, there's no goal to any of this. It's not like, it's not like Newsom said all this stuff in this document and said, Hey guys, if we do all of this, this is how our lives will improve. X amount of cases down, X amount of hospitalizations down, X amount of deaths down, right? This outlines none of that. At the very least, what Cuomo did was say, Okay, if we just abide by these much looser, I should say than this. Set of, I, I, set of, let me defend Andrew Cuomo much looser than set that. of set of rules. We should hopefully see these trends happen, which is this number of hospitalizations down, this number of cases down, this number of deaths down, and 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 by county, right? He did the, he did this. He went as small as to say. We need to do this on a county basis, yeah, yeah, and we can and we can actually only do the opening on a county basis once each individual county makes sure that they get these things under control. And then he basically said, if we do this and these things go down, we just we just did a social experiment that says that 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 what we're doing is working. And so, guess what, everyone? As long as we continue to be careful, we can go out and we can we can chant in public. We can sing songs. We can exercise in the park. You know, and I'm and I'm. You're making a great point. I just like I I you know because I mean I think when and it goes back to a question you asked me before we got into this, which was you know is New York really open? And I think yeah, in a lot of respects, when you look at things relatively. In it, it is. I mean, when when I'm on busy streets in New York, and by busy streets I mean streets with um, restaurants um, that are sort of lining the street. Which I mean, a lot of streets are like this. But you you know you know how New York is. You have uh, streets that have mostly business and streets that have mostly residential. And and when I walk the streets that are mostly business, and yes, it depends on the neighborhood, but. I mean, you would think that nothing is. If, if people were not wearing masks, you'd think nothing was going on. Restaurants you go to, are all restaurants vibrant. are all open, vibrant. People sitting, eating. They're actually open indoors. Most of them now. Plexiglass what I would, around the what, tables. No plexiglass. And That's what good. I would say is, and this also speaks to the the conscient the con. Bleh, I can't even say it. I'll just say a simpler word. The the respect. And the self-awareness that people have in New York. Uh, not everyone, but a lot of people. But you can do indoor dining now. But I've actually not seen a lot of restaurants start to do it. Even though doing so is, I mean, at this point, probably essential to their livelihoods as a business. But it's because they're, they're looking way longer term down the line. They want to get to a point where they can open up the indoors and know for certain that we're not going to go back to a state 
where things are going to start to get shut again. You know, they're, they're waiting for that time. And that time is coming. Things are getting a lot better. And like I said, things, when you look at certain streets with the businesses, with the restaurants, yeah, capacity is down, right? You can't, like, you can't physically go into a store at 100% capacity anymore. They let 50% of people in. But people are going. And you go into Brooklyn, you go on the weekend to Williamsburg. And I mean, the, you know, Bushwick, uh, or, or sorry, uh, Bedford Ave, right? Up in Williamsburg, you know, where, where, where the Apple store is and where all the restaurants are. You walk around, it's like any other day in, in the fall. You know, you go, to, you go at nighttime on a Friday night. You go to Bushwick, you go on DeKalb, right? It's like, no, it's like, nothing's, it's like nothing has happened, right? So, I mean, I think in a sense it is opening up when you look at things relatively. And in, in, in this world that we're in right now, you have to look at things relatively because, I mean, there's no going, who knows when we're going to go back to what open used to be? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't. And should we? Let me ask a really simple question. Yeah. Once we have a vaccine, let's say we give it like a one-month grace period for yeah. people to go get it. Do we stop all this shit? Is that free will at that point? At that point, yeah, can you yeah, even put yeah. on the restrictions anymore because if people don't get it because they think Bill Gates is injecting Windows 95 in there <laughs> to fuck them into an Iranian whatever regime like i you know what i mean yeah like you know what people say on the internet if if if, if they if, if if people have the free will to get it and they choose yeah. not to fuck them yeah well look i mean i think that's where i have to agree because at that point what we're saying is we've created a solution and yes that that's where the argument about the fear of not knowing what you don't know comes into play if you're if you're afraid of that then you need to really reevaluate what your priorities are because if there's something that's presented to you that's going to stop all of this bullshit from happening and you don't take it because you're afraid of something that you don't know i mean you really need to reevaluate the the priorities that you have in your life i'll i'll be i'll be you know super blunt about that um i'm 100% going to get it i think i think anybody i mean i think Stick it in my veins, yeah, baby. Exactly. I mean, I think, I think. Look, there are industries out there that need this vaccine. They they desperately need this vaccine. Airlines desperately need this vaccine. Restaurants desperately need this vaccine. Hotels desperately need this vaccine. We need to take it to revive these businesses. It's the only way, really. If it works. So with that said, what's the worst possible thing that can happen? And don't tell me a fucking zombie apocalypse because I'm not going to believe you. You'd be surprised what the internet says, man. Oh you know, my God. You have to think about it in, 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 in that framework. What's the worst possible thing that can happen? I am legend. <laughs> Realistic. I mean, there's no evidence to suggest besides, uh, you know, Woody Harrelson in Zombieland that, that, that there's any negative consequence to it. 
And so I'm going to take my fear of not knowing what I don't know, and I'm going to replace it with optimism. And I'm going to say, stick that baby in my veins. Let's revive what's happening here. And let's make, let, let, let's, let's make these industries alive again. And let's give people back their jobs. That's really what it boils down to. All right, everybody. I got Horo over here. I, I turned his camera off for the minute. We're actually going to cut this podcast right there because we're just getting warmed up on some stuff. There's a lot of things like we were talking about in the one break we took in the middle of this one where we want to get to him. This is wild. This this kid's insane. So there's going to be a second podcast. We'll see where that one goes. And I know where we're going to start. We're going to start on some of the state of the polarization and obviously the big old election coming up and then we'll see where it goes from there. But um, yeah, so stay tuned for part two. That's going to be dropping probably the same week that I'm dropping this one or whatever. But thanks for listening to this one and uh, give it a thought. Get back to me. Peace.